Thresholds Radio with your host, John Stevenson. Recording a UFO activity. And they're in the darkness, on the ground, knocking on the walls. Shadow. Something crawling. The ghost the ghost Why? Oh my god! Are you seeing this? Two, a formation forming. Talk with ghosts. Greetings, Earthlings. For tonight's show on Thresholds Radio, we have an extensive two hour interview with Joe Montaldo. That's one of the co-founders of ICAR. That's the International Community for Alien Research. So we'll be discussing aliens, as well as military abductions, with actual witness accounts from contactees. We're coming right back here on Thresholds Radio. Stay plugged. TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out UFO-Info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com. All right, wait no longer. And we have Joe Monteldo on the line for you. Welcome back. With us now is my good friend Joe Monteldo, co-founder of the ICAR, which is the International Community for Alien Research, also host of UFO Undercover, and the owner of the UFO Paranormal Radio Network, which is one of the networks we're broadcast on. I'm going to welcome you into the show tonight, Joe, and how are things going with you this evening? Pretty good, John. Nice to talk to you. It's been actually a long time to talk to, so it's always good to, to hear from you. Yeah, first time you've actually been on our show, and I guess that's ruined on my part since uh, UFO Paranormal Radio Network is one of the networks we're hosted on. Yeah, that's okay. Though. We, I, I know we both keep busy schedules, so that's not a big thing. It's uh, one of those things that, you know, unfortunately when you do radio and research, it, there never seems to be enough time. Yes, I know how that is. I could really use a time-traveling machine. Yes, uh, according, well, we don't want to get into that, but according to a few people, there already is one. <laughs> well, see, why don't y'all send me and John one? We'll take it out, give it a spin, let you know how it works. <laughs> oh, could I use one of those things? No. So uh, you're saying here you're the co-founder or one of the co-founders of iCar. Do you want to tell people what that's about for people who have no idea? Well, it's a good idea because, I, you know, iCar doesn't get talked about near much as it should when I'm doing radio interviews. And iCar, first off, it's www.icar1.com. You can go there and check out the site. Um, ICAR is the largest UFO abduction organization on the planet as of today. It's uh, 27,500 members strong. Uh, it's about 15 times the size of MUFON. Matter of fact, the only organization out there that's actually bigger uh, than ICAR is is the Raelian group, the Real. And we don't really consider them a real group because uh, – you know, let's be honest. They're a sex cult. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have to leave it at we have to leave it at the sex cult and leave it like that. Okay. And uh, it's just one of those things. Um, but the international community, boy, it's getting noisy all of a sudden around here. <laughs> the, the international community of alien research, though, is by far the largest UFO organization on the planet. And all we really do is abduction research. I mean, we 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 mess with sightings. Uh, you know, if you do have a good sighting, and let me let me put this make this really nice if you have a good sighting like a multiple witness sighting or you have videotape or or photographs with eyewitness testimony uh we're interested in that not to be rude 
uh, things like red lights in the sky, dots in the sky, white lights crossing the sky, we're not really interested in it because there's nothing we can do with it. I mean, if you send it to us, all we're going to do is send it over to MUFON or to Peter Davenport or to Larry Hatcher or to George Filer. One of them, is uh, that's all we're going to do with it. We're going to send it to one of those organizations because it's not something we track and it's not something we get involved with. But like I said, if it's got eyewitness testimony, uh, really good videotape, really good photographs or any any uh, any sighting that may correlate, correlate with a, a abduction, we're interested in. Matter of fact, we're always interested in any sightings that correlate to alien abduction cases. Uh, you know, a lot of times, to put this into perspective, just recently in your hometown, not far from the Great Lakes, mm-hmm. lady calls in uh, about uh, uh, actually it was a couple of them out out by the Great Lakes. They're talking. They call in. What they said was this was a, a green kind of chevron shaped thing going across the thing. They watched it. It was eight o'clock when they seen it. The next thing they know, they're at home. It's midnight. Don't know. They don't. They really don't remember anything from the time they seen the Chevron craft to the time they got home. These were especially interested in this. This sounds like uh, an active abduction or abduction in progress. They they seen the the craft and then were taken. And you know, most contactees will either see the craft before they're taken or right after they're put back. Uh, they tend to see a UFO. So uh, what it means, I have no idea. But it, it is something that we do track on a regular basis because it does seem to happen a lot. And there's usually so, I mean, that, it, that time loss too, isn't there? Isn't that a common yeah, thing? Well, not as that you know. I'm glad you brought that up because in the old days, lost time was a big thing in the field. Mm-hmm. Around '96, ICAR uncovered. Well, it wasn't even ICAR at the time, but uh, we uncovered something new. We had noticed a big, big drop in lost time cases, and we couldn't figure out why. We knew abductions weren't stopping, so we were trying to figure it out. Well, we stumbled across a case in Gulf Breeze, Florida. Uh, a couple was down there on vacation. Uh, make a long story short, they were checked into the hotel. They left the hotel at. Uh, to go to the beach. So they leave their hotel. The video camera shows them what time they're leaving the hotel. They get to the convenience store where they stop to buy a Coke and, and whatever else. And it happened to be at shift change, which was 11 o'clock. So they were changing shifts. So the tellers remember seeing these people in the store. They said they were talking about them and they were talking about aliens and UFOs and stuff. So they remembered them. The people at the hotel remember them as well. So long story short, they leave there. They drive to the beach. They walk out on the beach. They're sitting on the beach. They're out there. Some weird stuff happened. Uh, so they, they leave to go home that night. They get in their car and they found a ticket, a parking ticket inside the car next to the shifter column. Uh, it was one of those sitter console shifters. It was mm-hmm. slid between the seat and then the car was locked. Uh, they had locked the car and the car was locked when they got back. But yet here was this ticket sitting next to the, the shifter. Okay, well, you know, usually if a cop writes a ticket, he's going to put it under your windshield. It's a parking right. violation, you know. So it's in the car. So that's, you know, it's weird, but it's not beyond maybe the cop, maybe they forgot to lock the door and the cop just stuck it in between the seats. I still think it's weird, but anyway. So they get back to the hotel, they're looking at the ticket. The ticket was written at 10.05. Now the hotel cameras have that car in the parking lot at 10.05. Okay. Okay. And I just told you both the hotel and the, the convenience store clerks seen these people at 11 o'clock. So we know they got to the beach at 11 o'clock, but yet... The ticket says 10.05. How is it possible? So we called the officer to see if it was a misprint or maybe it was a time zone thing. No, the officer said no. I was uh, I was on patrol. He said, matter of fact, he's off at 11 o'clock. He was back at the station at 10.30. So he physically seen that car there at 10.05 and wrote the ticket. And he said he slid the ticket on the side of the window. He don't know how it got in the car. Hmm. So now how is this possible? He's there at 10.05 writing a ticket, but the hotel has... 
the car at the hotel at 10.05. It, it's sitting in the parking lot. I mean, we got the tape. You can actually see it sitting in the parking lot. But he actually has the, the video footage from his camera saying 10.05. He's got it on film at the place, at the location, where it was at 11.05. Okay. So, you know, at first we just kept thinking this was some kind of screw-up, but then we realized it wasn't. What they do is they have the ability to take you out of time and then bring you back. So they can bring you back to several hours before you left, to several minutes before you left. So there is no missing time anymore. We call it gain time or even time. They're either gaining time or they're even in time. And by having you see, so they're there. They were actually taken uh, and put back. The car was actually put back at 10.05. It's, it's the weirdest thing we've ever run across. None of it makes any sense to me. Uh, somehow or another, they're pulling people out of our reality for whatever length of time and then putting them back before they take them. Right. I don't even know how they're not running into each other. You know, I, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me. It's, it's a weird thing, but we've run across this more than once. And then what they, they started doing is they changed the way they do memories. They used to do exclusively cover memories. Now they got very slick about this. What they will do is they will take a memory from your head and loop the memory. Instead of putting in a memory you're going to question, you know, like a false memory or something mm -hmm. not real, they give you something mundane, something you do every day, whether it's the drive to work, bringing your kids to school, having lunch, whatever. It's something that you do often, something you're not going to question. You're just going to say, okay, well, you know, yeah, I was on my way to work. The reason this backfires in E.T.'s face every once in a while, here's, here's one for you. Uh, one couple's driving home one day and they get in this big fight on, uh, on uh, well, they had gotten in this big fight one day driving to work. And E.T. used this same memory. They looped it, but it was 10 years later. Okay. So they're actually, well, they're actually driving down this highway where this happened. As they passed the store where they, she used to work, they got into a major fight and couldn't figure out why because they were re-looping the memory. It mm. was a false memory. It was, it was a real memory, but it had been re-looped, so they relived the damn experience. And, uh, and, of course, it was a fight. And then they realized, well, wait, this happened 10 years ago. They realized it was a problem then. Well, why are we fighting about something 10 years ago when it happened 10 years ago, but yet it feels like it just happened just now? So we had that case, and then one lady calls me. She drives every day to work. On her way to work, she used to stop at this little hot dog stand and get her a little chili cheese dog every day, right? So she gets abducted one day, and she's got this memory in her head. No big deal. Ah, but they had closed the hot dog stand two weeks earlier. Okay. So that morning in her head, she's got to drive to work where she stops at the hot dog stand and gets the hot dog. But, of course, it never happened because she was – the hot dog stand was gone. So they make little mistakes that if you pay attention to that you catch. And they don't make a lot of mistakes, mind you, but they do. When you do regressions uh, on people, can you catch these kind of things? Yeah, a lot of times, though, you can catch them without doing regression. Hmm. Uh, but even in regression, you will. I mean, like I was talking to you earlier, there's, there's layers and layers and layers of regression we do. But first and foremost, what iCar will do, they will meet someone. We will bring them in for an interview, whether it's a phone, internet, or in-person interview, depending on where they are. And we will interview them and, you know, we do a line of questioning to see what kind of keywords we'll find. You know, we're, we're, we're talking to, to get them to tell us about events or things that happened or suspicious things to them. And we're looking for keywords, uh, you know, things we expect to hear from someone who's been taken. Whether they know it or not, we still expect to hear it. And usually after you get enough of those, we'll, we'll really get down and, and introduce them to some other contactees and some other investigators. We will try to draw out as much information from the person we can without using hypnosis. But there sometimes comes a point where the person just can't go any further. The memories are too too hardly or are too strongly blocked or too mm. strongly locked down. So then we will use regression. And but I'm gonna tell you something. We're very strict about regression. First and foremost, we tell everybody the same thing: bring someone with you you implicitly trust. 
because we want you we want you to feel comfortable so bring someone with you that you trust secondly always videotape everything you do and thirdly and more importantly when you start the regression decide ahead of time what you're going to talk about so with the very first regression this is what's going to be I'm going to say okay uh, Janine I want you to tell me about the event that happened on October 21st of 1999 and I want you to tell me the whole event without stopping and they'll tell me the whole event and then I will stop them and then I will ask them to repeat that event from backwards forward after that we stop the videotape we get everybody together we review everything and then we come up with a, a line of questioning that doesn't use words like alien extraterrestrial alien beings gray right. anything like that you know like the girl the other day she's telling me about the bean that she's seen I said okay describe to me what you're seeing she said you want me to describe the person no, I said I want you to describe what it is that you're seeing what does this thing look like you know I don't want to use any words that be, could, could be considered leading the witness you know, we want them to answer this in their own words. It's the only way we're going to ever get to the truth is to get them to use their words and not ours. So words like extraterrestrial, spacecraft, grades are all banned from the conversation. You won't hear a word like that used until we're like 10 or 15 regressions in and we're looking for specific data about a specific contact. Being, you know, like she said all this happened in an event, then we're going to ask her, well, what did this being do? How did this procedure go? What, what does it actually look like? How does its hands and feet look like? Does it any smells, any vibrations, any sounds? All of this stuff, you know, and that's how we've learned a lot. You know, we've learned that the gray ships are organic. They're grown. They're, they're not a, a mechanical uh, a technology like we use. They're, they're an organic technology, oh, much really? more advanced. Yeah. I've never uh, heard that before. Oh, yeah, the grays interface with their ships. Hmm. Uh, this is this they actually interface when a grade gets into a ship it will actually like sit down in the ship and merge with the damn craft oh. uh, there's no physical instrumentation everything's done by telepathy um, so it's a much more advanced form of craft and when they do need physical stuff it melds out of the wall like the ship makes it as it needs it the tables actually come up from the floor and then expand out and when the person they put the person down at the table the table actually molds and confirms to the person and then wraps itself around the person and then it can completely engulf the person and these are uh, things you've actually heard when you're going through regression oh, yeah, and things and, like and, that and, and these aren't things we've heard one time these are things we've heard hundreds of times right. see for for it to be abduction criteria we need to hear it more than from more than 100 witnesses these days we've actually got some of them from more than 1000 witnesses and since a lot of this isn't made public, it's easier for us to determine if it's a lie or if it's the truth. Because we will make some – like the blue plasma on the, the gray ship. Mm -hmm. The blue plasma took us decades to figure out what it was. Uh, it's, a, it's a fuel source for the ship. It's a self-replicating fuel source for the, the ship. But not just that. The grays actually absorb it as food through their skin. They actually immerse humans in it to help them heal and to rejuvenate their cells. This is how we found out about it because we used to have all these contactees talking about this weird color blue. Some people said they felt like they were being drowned or immersed. Some people said it was always around them. Some people seen, they said they seen the grays sitting in it and stuff. But no one could figure out what it was. And then so what we did is we took 100 contactees and planted a question. What is the blue plasma or what is the blue color? And, and, and we told 100 different contactees this and as – over the course of two or three weeks as they were being taken, you know, what we do them is, is every night before they would go to bed, we have them repeat these questions in their head. So what happens is when the gray takes you or any alien takes you, it's, it's subconscious. Your subconscious automatically telepathically sends this to the gray's head. The grays will answer most times without even thinking, mm -hmm. you know, because they're all so in each other's head so much that they will just actually answer the question back. Well, when you get a hundred witnesses come back and tell you the exact same thing and you, and you only told each individual the question, you didn't share it with everybody else uh, and nobody knew who the other witnesses were going to be, it's almost impossible that it's not true. Oh, that's you amazing. Know? 
you know, so it's a comparison study, and we do a lot of this kind of stuff, and we've been doing a lot of this kind of stuff for more than a decade now. A lot of these people that abducted, are they abducted multiple times then? All abductees are abducted. See, the thing about abductees, and this is more importantly, there's no such thing as a one-time abductee. Mm -hmm. I know, you know, people want to say there is, but there's not. None that we've ever, ever met, and, and, and we'll get into this more, but what it comes down to is, E.T. abducts in family lines, and this started probably 10,000 to 100,000 years ago. Somewhere along the line, they intervened in our family lines, either interbred or somehow got involved in our family lines. Um, they only abduct inside those family lines. In other words, the greys are taking contactees that are, that are closely related to them. So are the humans and the reptilians. Uh, they're actually abducting people from those family lines. And uh, each generation of children, of course, their gifts get a little better. We've been tracking this for three decades. Uh, telepathic children and contactee families seem to get better with each generation. Hmm. Uh, their empathic and telepathic abilities seem to expand uh, exponentially as they uh, each generation progresses. So it's it's been an interesting thing to watch happen. And so we know now that there's actually a progression. Like to, to, to help people who are listening and understand what I'm talking about, abductions start pre-birth. Okay, while you're still in your mother's womb, you're being abducted. You're put back. Children talk about aliens all the time. Just parents don't want to hear about it. Uh, they talk about my little bug-eyed friend, my little gray friend, my little blue friend, my right. little reptilian friend. You know, grays will manifest. I cannot tell you how many invisible friends have turned out to be grays or reptilians or humans. And you just uh, think your child's just, you know, being a normal kid and imagining things. You don't even yeah. question it. But, you know, uh, we expect, uh, you know, uh, imaginary children to be in the contactees' lines. And, it, and it's prevalent. If you took 100 contactees and 100 people off the street – those 100 contactees, probably 90 of them had invisible friends. You, those same 100 people on the street, maybe five did, hmm. and if that. So it, it's a weird thing to actually watch happen. Uh, so we, you know, we see things like this on a regular basis. So you know, we just keep categorizing, keep adding to the database, uh, keep doing comparison studies and seeing you know, what's the same, what's not the same, uh, what can we expect to happen in an abduction of this kind. And uh, so we, we are learning. We also know that you know, in the old days, everybody always thought the grays worked for the reptilians and the human aliens. Well, we know that's a crock. We know that both the reptilians and the uh, human aliens are scared of the grays. Uh, their telepathic ability far exceeds either one of the other two races, and their technology far exceeds them. See, there were so many misnomers. First off, a gray is not even gray. There's no such thing as a really gray gray. They're not actually gray. Grays come in three different colors, and actually, when they eat that blue plasma we were talking about, they absorb it through their skin. Mm -hmm. If you see them right after feeding, they're kind of like an electric cobalt blue color. Wow. If you see them when they haven't eaten for a few days, they're almost translucent looking like a kind of a grayish, whitish, translucent looking color. And there's every shade in between there. So it really depends when you see them, what color they're going to appear to you. But more importantly than that, there also are brown and white grays because we just call them grays. So we just say brown and white grays. But grays start in three foot. They got three foot grays. We think that there's a regular a living three foot gray. And then we think there's a, um, a um, what do you call them? A cyborg gray. It's half, half alive, half robot. Okay. Then we we know there's a five foot gray, you know, in all three colors. We know there's a five foot gray. We also know there's a seven foot gray in all three colors. Wow. Uh, so you know we've been tracking this for a long time. And I and think these, a lot of people mistake the tall grays as the praying mantis. And these are all uh, collaborated through multiple people. I yeah, mean, through don't, multiple people. They don't yeah. know each other, and they're all coming up with the same type of uh, descriptions and everything. They're giving us the same type of technology and the same type of descriptions. Wow. It's like with the like with the reptilians. We always wanted to do all reptilian males and females have tails. Come to find out, only the the dominant ones do. 
the you know the alpha males and the alpha females have tails. All the rest of them don't. Actually, so, speaking yeah. of uh, reptilians, before, we can do it now or later if you want. But uh, tell everyone that story you were telling me about uh, during Katrina in New Orleans. Oh, too. you know this is interesting because y'all, I know a lot of people hear about this story and they don't know what the source is. The source comes from there was a, a, a half a dozen or more, probably closer to about nine or ten uh, National Guard and in, in New Orleans Police Department, uh, New Orleans police officers. Right after Katrina, we were home about three days after Katrina. There was still water in the city. And uh, I get a phone call from a uh, New Orleans police officer saying that he saw a reptilian, actually saw three reptilians walking through the water on Esplanade Avenue, which is right outside the French Quarter. And I was kind of like, oh, he's pulling my leg, blah, 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 blah. A couple of days later, I get three more cops calling with the same story. A couple of days after that, a National Guard guy calls. A couple of days after that, a couple more National Guard guy calls call me. All together, I talked to, like I said, nine or ten of them, all basically saying the same thing. That they were on Esplanade, you know, uh, walking in the water when they seen these reptilians walking towards them. Now, this is what's really weird about this. National Guard Guard's talking to me. Uh, he said it was four of them walking together when they seen the three reptilians. He said, you would have thought the first thing I would have done was slung my in, you know, took my M16 off my shoulder and pointed at him. Right. He said, but he said, but no time did I ever even think about grabbing my gun. And he said, it's so funny because he said, I remember walking up towards him thinking, oh, my God, what is this? And the next thing I remember is I'm walking away from them and they're disappearing off in the distance. Hmm. And all the accounts were basically the same way. Even the cop in the boat said, I was going up to him in the boat and I, I remember getting real close to him. And the next thing I know, I'm, I'm going the opposite way away from him. Wow. Uh, and, and that's pretty much what they were talking about. And, you know, these accounts were good. And, and then we started getting other accounts after that of people being taken to like the UNO arena. They said they had a mock mall set up and, they, and the reptilians were – using people to help them to establish crowd control and other weird stuff. What all of that means is beyond me. I mean, it's really weird stuff to start off with. And, um, but when you have corroborated stories like that, especially from people that aren't from here, you know, all the National Guard people, none of them were local. And these people you interviewed individually. It sounds as if you had yeah. them all in a room. They all were individual, and they all came up with this same exact thing. And only two of them even knew who the other ones were. Only two of them knew each other. None of the other ones even knew each other. Somebody, and wait, and what got me is four of the National Guard guys had just come back from Kuwait. I mean, from not from Kuwait, from uh, Iraq. Mm-hmm. And uh, so these were soldiers that were in the field that have had action and still never even bothered pulling their gun out towards these reptilians. So there must be some kind of mind trick or something going on there, some kind of mind control going on as they're approaching these reps because uh, no shots were fired. None of that was fired. And and the simple fact that they were roaming around in the city after Katrina kind of weirds me out to start off with. Uh, You know, the water was deep where they were. It was about six feet deep, Uh, you know, and the guy – and that's another funny part. He says, uh, you know, because the water on – two of the cops were telling me the water was about chest deep to them but seemed to be barely above the reptilians' waist. Wow, so they were yeah. big. <laughs> yeah, they big. You know, they big. And most people say the reptilians are around seven foot tall, five to six hundred pounds. The big males are. Um, so the big females. So they talk about that a lot. You know, they're they're big, big, big. But the reps get a bad rap because really and truly, in the research, they sound more like us than any of the other species do. Wow. They seem to have a, a base religion. You know, maybe it's one one religion, but they seem. You know, they got five fingers, five toes. You know, they got nose, ears, eyes. Uh, I mean, they're basically the same shape as us, except they got, you know, a reptilian appearance. They got a ridged head and a weird looking nose and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some other features that we're not going to talk about because they're abduction criteria. But still, 
their overall behavior and attitude is more like the humans are than it's not. And to drive this part home, I know a lot of y'all watch Ancient Aliens, so I'm going to give y'all a quick lesson on, on the real Ancient Aliens. The Sumerians say, this is actually written in the text. I don't know why this is so hard for everybody. Uh, the Sumerians say uh, a long time ago this human-looking race appeared. It's how they say it. They don't even say they look just like us. They said they appeared on our planet, but they couldn't breathe the atmosphere of the planet. So they built two great white dome cities that they could live in. So they moved in these cities. That race created races just like themselves, but could breathe the atmosphere in an alien that could move around and meld around a planet. This is all written in text. None of this is being ad-libbed or anything else. So they ruled for a long time, but they said they wanted to know Somewhere along that line, that group decided, well, wait, we're just as omnipotent as that group is. Why are we digging ditches and plowing fields and mining stuff? So they created what the Sumerians call the seven creations of man. Uh, the last creation is a race just like the one here today, but not exactly. Let me explain. Uh, the race they created could do things like procreate. They could plow the fields. They could name the animals. They could make beer and stuff like that. But they never asked why they had to do it. They were never sentient in the way we understand sentience. Now, the Sumerians say this went on for a, a thousand years or so, and then the reptilians showed up. And the reptilians used to come and steal and rape their women. And they kept saying the children were being born different. Originally, I thought they meant the children looked different. But after reading enough of the text, I realized that's not what they were saying. The children looked just like everybody else did. They just acted differently. Eventually, those children overthrew those, those, those aliens. They wanted them out. They had become self-aware is what had happened. Uh, these children being born were now aware. They're thinking, well, why are we plowing a field? Why don't you plow the damn field? Right. We're, not, we're not your slave. What the hell is this about? So now you have a race that's part reptilian, part human alien. Whether they were part anything else, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if there was something that they – the aliens used to create us if they made us from a piece of their cells and just dumbed us down. I don't really know. But we do know for science fact that every human on this planet has a reptilian section in their brain. And it's a very important section. It is the, the section that makes you who and what you are. It's a section that makes you ask why. Okay, It's a very important section. It's a primal section of the brain, but it's a very important section of the brain. It's the one that makes you stand up for who and what you are. So knowing this is very important when you read the old text, and the Dogon get into this in a great detail, and so do the, the Egyptians. Something else you will find in every major culture on the planet, they worship the reptilian. They don't hate the reptilian. They say that the bringers of life and the bringers of, of actually several things. It's the human aliens that are considered evil and nasty in the ancient world. Uh, the Egyptians portray them as humans with hyena heads and all kinds of stuff because they were vicious. Mm -hmm. Now, to drive this point home, I don't know how many of y'all are familiar with Adolf Hitler in his book called Mumkong. In his book, he talks about these fair-haired, blue-eyed angels that used to come and tell him what to do, like his genetic experiments and all. Mm -hmm. So we know that the aliens do genetic experiments. We know that it's fact. You know, that's, that's something that happens on a daily basis. But here now you have a correlation with Nazi Germany, Hitler, and the aliens, and the type of experiments are being done. So wow. when it comes right down to it, I wouldn't consider the human aliens to be friendly, loving, peace light, or anything else for that matter. I'd be more concerned that they may be the more vicious of the three that are visiting the planet right now. Or let me put this another way, the ones least concerned with the humans overall, what happens to us. Uh, we may be related to them, but I don't think they think of us as anything more than like distant trash cousins or something. Uh, the reason they say the greys got involved, because if you look at your ancient history, you won't find the greys until about three or 4,000 years ago. Prior to that, the greys didn't seem to exist on the planet. Even though the humans and reptilians are talked about a lot, the greys aren't. 
According to the ancient world, the humans and the reptilians were about to get into a major nasty fight over the planet. And the greys showed up. They were, I guess, became the policemen to oversee what was going on on this planet. Uh, I guess the humans wanted to keep it or the reptilians wanted to keep it. Somebody wanted the planet and the greys showed up. So now we now have three races on the planet. And now we have three sources of DNA inside of, of the abductees on the planet. Um, it, it gets a little sticky wicked up in here. You know, so, you know, and, and more importantly than that, the uh, reptilians say they're native to Earth, that they were here and, and had to leave when the, when, the, when the meteor hit the planet 63 million years ago. They had to leave and, and colonize somewhere else until the planet was livable again. But, um, they, you know, that's what they're saying. Well, to drive this point home, there's something called the Map of the Creator. It's on the Perveda website. It's sitting in a museum in Russia right now. This map is an aerial resource map dated 120 million years ago. There's no humans on the planet 120 million years. And then, by the way, no archaeologists argue this date on this map. Mm -hmm. So here's a map you have taken from an aerial view. So whoever made this map could see the valley it was in from an aerial source 120 million years ago. Well, we were taught that's impossible. No one's supposed to be here 120 million years ago. And, and frankly, nothing should have been flying in the sky more than 300 years ago. So what the hell was it? You know, how was something flying back then and how could anything exist to create a map 120 million years ago? Well, being that dinosaurs ruled the planet for 200 million years, it's highly unlikely that something intelligent didn't evolve, evolve in that time frame. Remember, it only took humans 4 million years to evolve to what we are today. So in 200 million years, yeah, the odds are in somebody's favor that the reptilians evolved. Um, so it looks like they may have actually been native to the planet. Now, the argument is they left, they came back. Is it still their planet? Well, let me ask you this. If your great, 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 great grandpa owned land in California and he died and you didn't find out about it till today and you went out there today and there's people living on it, is it their land or is it your land? What is California going to say? The California going to say it's your land and they got to get the off of it. Right. Sorry. Beep. They get yeah. the mess off of it. <laughs> sorry about that, y'all. Didn't mean to use that word. Um, but anyway, that's what they're going to tell them. So it, it gets a bit of weird there. Uh, but it doesn't seem like that's what the reptilians really want. I don't think they're here to evict us off the planet or any of that. They really do seem like they're wanting to work more on a on an ongoing line with us. And I really do think that they would be more willing to share the planet if we were. Uh, I don't think they're the problem. I think we're the problem. And and so on people understand reptilians are a bad word. They're warm blooded and amphibians. Uh, they 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 are and I, I we, we found that they were amphibians a long time ago. They have gills in, in an area, which I can't say because it's abduction criteria. There's some special features about their hands and their feet, which are also abduction criteria. Mm -hmm. But if, if, if you've seen one, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, the thing about it is, is they seem to, you know, and it makes more sense to me. If you're going to be the most advanced species on this planet, you would utilize both land and water. I mean, come on, water makes up 77% of the planet. Exactly. So the most advanced race should come from the water, and that's what it appears happened. Uh, it appears that you know, they were an amphibian race that moved on land that used both the water and the land. And I cannot tell you how many contactees talk about reptilians living underwater or reptilians living underground or so on and so forth. It seems to be a common theme with all of this. So, Does, you know, anybody, it, does anyone ever say that they were taken like under the oceans or anything? To any oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Actually, um, there's a couple of good ones I like to talk about. Uh, there's a library somewhere. Now, I don't know if it's on Earth or if it's on another planet with another ocean. I really don't know, but... 
Contactees will talk about this place. It's a great big dome. It's actually several domes, but there's a central dome in the middle of all these other domes, and it's like a big city underwater. You walk in, you can walk, you know, the ship comes up to the side, you can walk right through this, this clear thing into the ship, and you, it's like, a, I guess, like an a, a airlock that you walk through, and then you're in the, the dome. What, there's a this big, huge dome. They say it's this, this dome's like the size of a city, like the size of New Orleans, but it's nothing in it. Right in the middle of the dome, there's a pedestal with a ball on top of it, like a big, huge crystal. Mm-hmm. And that's all it is. They, it, but it's their library. When you go into it and you place your hand on the ball, whatever you're thinking about manifests itself in the dome. So it's kind of like a hologram library for a better way of saying it. Uh, and I've literally had more than a hundred reptilian contactees talk about it, and everyone described it the same way. I left out two things in that because there's two things in there we consider abduction criteria. One, the color exactly. of the crystal. One is the color of the crystal, and everybody always says it's the same color. And uh, one is something else that, that goes on when you activate the thing. Uh, and that we keep because we need to know if, if it's real because, you know, somebody could be listening to this show. And, exactly. And, say, and these people happen. are all coming up with the exact same thing, basically. It right? is. That's it's, what got me in. That's what got me stuck in this, John. I, I really, honestly, the first time somebody told me they were abducted by aliens, I told them to go see a psychiatrist. <laughs> right. I said, you're nuts. I mean, we're talking 30 years ago, but still, I'm like, you're nuts. You're crazy. You need to stop smoking or drinking or popping uh-huh. whatever the hell <laughs> that you're doing. And that was the first person. And then a couple other people told me. And, then, and, I, and it kept weirding me out because some of these people were had excellent careers and, and families and, and stuff if this got out would really ruin their lives and I couldn't figure out why they were saying this. You know, I'm like, they can't, they're not crazy. They got over over normal IQs and they got families and businesses and I'm thinking, why would you make a story up like this? You know, of course, the more I got into it, the more I found out about it, the more I realized that there was something else going on. And even then, for a long time, I thought, well, maybe it's government. You know, maybe it's something else that the government's doing or so on and so forth. But after about 10 years of research, I had realized that the planet really was being visited, but I didn't know near what I know now. You know, that's what made me start looking for ways to prove it, ways to find out if things were the same, things that we can expect from them, you know, what may be going on, what may not be going on, what may be government, maybe what might be, just be fantasy, what might be real. Right. You know, because there's a lot of that going on. And contactees have a tendency to judge things by the way they were raised and what they understand about their universe. Uh, so a lot of times the data is not pure. You know, Do you find out that you know some of these contactees when you go through your interviews and stuff that it's actually in fact is government instead? I mean, are you coming across yeah, well, these? We, we we have military abductees, but military abductees are really just contactees that the government has an interest in. So it's someone um, they knew was contacted from an alien, yeah. and then they well, abduct this, them. By, uh, this is actually a good thing you brought up. We tell people all the time when they want to go public, be sure you want to go public because that's one of the ways the government finds contactees because. Contactees that generally go public are usually advanced contactees that know quite a bit, and that's who the government's actually interested in. They don't give a good blank about Jane and John uh, contactees right. that doesn't know nothing, but the ones that are flying ships or seeing propulsion systems or maybe talking about agendas, that's who they're interested in. So when you come public, you just told the government, hey, I exist. So it's a good chance if, if you're legit, you're going to get mill lab. Uh, so, you know, we tell people to be real careful with that, you know, because it's, it's just one of those things that happens. Yeah, the government uh, can be more dangerous than your alien encounter. Oh, yeah. And plus, they're much sloppier when they're covering stuff up in your head, too. They're just not near as efficient as the, the aliens are. Uh, Say, so on the other hand, too, how many times do you come across people that are just delusional or how do you want to put it? You know, just it's in their <laughs> head only. Probably, if I had to pick a, st- a stat on that, I would say two out of every ten people we we interview are legitimate contactees. Mm. Uh, the other eight 
can vary from childhood things that happen like sexual abuse, man, you know, mm-hmm. molestation. Some of it can manifest from drug abuse. Some of it can just be because a person's just a liar. Uh, some of them want to see if they can fool us. Right. But it, you know, maybe it's three out of every ten turn out to be legit, but it's not near as many people as everybody thinks. And you've got to go through a lot of bullet to get to them. Now, granted, you know, with abduction criteria and a lot of stuff we do these days, it makes it a lot easier on us. But still, you know, somebody who's well-researched can really you – can, you, can, you can waste a lot of time trying to figure out if they're legit or not. You know, if they really take – like if they sit down and listen to all my archives or listen to a bunch of other people in the archives, you know, they can present themselves as a contactee and not actually be one. Well, some of those people we were discussing a while ago off-air – actually believe it themselves even though it hasn't happened is that harder for you to determine when because in their mind they do think it's true it it is it is and that's why that's where regression comes in that's what i was telling you sometimes you'll have somebody on deep regression and instead of an alien popping out uncle bob pops up or something okay you know uh to put it into perspective i mean and you're like oh well what the hell and and then all you can really do is bring the person out of it and tell them, no, this has nothing to do with aliens. This is something else, and you really need to seek professional help because it's not something we do. We're not psychologists, uh, and we're not going to mess around someone's head like that. You know, We can offer support in a lot of ways because we've been doing this a long time, but we're not psychologists. So if it's something that's going to manifest itself other than alien, well, yeah, we're sending you somebody else that can help you. And, of course, that's their choice to go or not to go. And some people get mad about it, John, and say, oh, no, you're wrong. It's still alien, even though this came out. I'm like, well, suit yourself. You know, you're, you're going to live in denial, and it's just going to mess your life up even more. Because contactees start off with are prone to alcohol, drug abuse. Uh, some contactees will ne- will never have any problems, and some will have a lot of problems. And what we found too is about probably less than two or three percent of contactees come forward anyway. Ninety-nine percent of them will be classified, or I'm sorry, ninety-five percent of them will be classified as, as abductees and will never know anything. Mm-hmm. They will never even ex- suspect that they're being taken. Uh, so you know, th- we're not even worried about finding them because even they don't know. Well, that's a good point. I mean, how would, would somebody know? You know, do you just have a dream all of a sudden, or why does somebody believe they've been abducted all of a sudden? What are you finding? Usually, it's because someone on board the craft has showed some interest to the aliens that the aliens think they may be useful. So the aliens will trigger what we like to call the awakening. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually it'll start off with weird feelings or manifestation of dreams or sightings, good sightings right after a contact, uh, you know, to let the person know that this is a real event and to find somebody that can actually help them with the event. And a lot of times what's really weirds me out more than anything else is I can't tell you how many times a contactee will come to us with a name in mind because they're calling them keepers. You know, for us, there's abductees, contactees, and keepers, which is three, three different levels of, of contact. But mm-hmm. um, a lot of times, contactees will come forward and look for a particular keeper. My name has been used a lot. Other keepers, I know those names have been used a lot. Well, they all actually come back and ask for you when they do this. Well, because you probably worked with them on board the ship. That's why. Oh, keepers, okay. are, keep, keepers are people that um, have reached, a, a, I don't want to say a mutual understanding with the aliens because it's not really true. It's, it's, they do know more than the average contact he's going to know because they're, they're, you know, they're awake a lot more and they're involved a lot more. But they're really just there to help the everyday person get through the experience, whether it's with their hybrid children, whether it's with something going on with the contact. You know, contact from puberty up until about 28 is horrific. It's, it's rough, man. They do all kind of nasty stuff to you, both physically and mentally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why it's another thing we tell people all the time when they ask about regression. We, I tell them, you don't want to know what happened to you in your 20s. Wow. There's no need to know. There's nothing there 
that's going to help your understanding of what the aliens are doing. There's just a lot of harsh experiments in there, a lot of taking of, of fetuses and sperm, a lot of inter interacting and interbreeding where they'll take you and put you with someone else. See, they might pick you up, John, and, and pick up Jane Smith down the street and put you all in a room together or something mm -hmm. and, and, and have you physically do it. Or they may just put you on the milk machine and take one of her eggs and put it together somewhere else and put it in somebody else for that matter. You just never know why they do what they do. Um, you know, and they and they do it differently with different people, and, and it, you know, but they're running some type of hybrid program. Actually, several types of hybrid. Well, apparently, program. we're like just lab rats or something. I mean, they're just doing experimentation, yeah. right? They do, but then then you know, sometimes I, I get this weird sense, like I was telling you about when we do when we program contactees to ask questions. The greys and the reptiles, even the humans, sometimes they will act like proud parents when you get something right, like. Well, wow, did you see her? She got into my head and, and got an answer. Damn. And, and they're all happy. Of course, if it's a question you're not supposed to know, they'll get pissed off and they will punish your ass over it. Hmm. Um, but the thing about it is they do act like that. So they do have some concern for us. It, it's just – it seems to vary from group to group. In other words, you know, we, another weird thing we found that a lot of uh, people, spirits gods, have manifest themselves into aliens. Uh, one lady I was working with, she had an Indian guy. She was always telling me about an Indian guy and how it used to do this and do that. And I said, well, let me regress you about your Indian guy. And I did, and it turned out to be a gray. Wow. You know, and we find this a lot. Uh, and it, because it, it's easier, for, especially for the new age people, to deal with like Indian gods or dragons or tigers or whatever than an extraterrestrial. You know, ET is scary to a lot of people. Exactly. Uh, even, even, even if they're friendly, they still seem to be scary to people. So, you know, we see a lot of that kind of manifestation too. So a lot of that goes on. Uh, the human type aliens in general, they really, they really are kind of nasty to us. I know everybody always wants you to think they're peace, love, and light, and they're the greatest thing on the planet, but that's you, you judge them by their actions, like we talked about the Hitler thing. Uh, you know, judging them by that, it's just they're fairly horrific race. Uh, uh, there's lots of countries they could have contacted; they didn't have to contact Hitler. How many different races are you, you know, coming across in this? How many different species, or whatever you want to call them, types of aliens? For us. There's either was it six or seven that we consider legit. There are the greys, the reptilian amphibians, uh, the human type aliens, the tall whites, the little short browns, and the light beans. That that's what we consider the six legitimate type that there's actually evidence for. Uh, you know, when people tell me like Greer told me one day at a conference. 56 types. I said, where the hell did you get that figure from? Well, NASA guy said, I said, but, but, but where did he get that from? I said, let's review how many spacecraft types there are because there's not very many. You know, if, if you ever even look at a chart where there's like 60 or 70 craft, you'll notice they almost always look the same. They're round. You know, in spacecraft, I don't know if you can answer this, but I've always wondered this. You know, we see different types of spacecraft. Mm -hmm. are, they, are they like all from the same race? You know, like you have different versions of a Ford, you got a Lincoln and a Torres and stuff like that, or are they from different races? Well, to, to help you out with that, the regular everyday saucer belongs to the greys. Um, it, uh, they have three types or four types of the saucers, which range in size. Uh, they have like a scout craft, a probe craft, what I would consider a more advanced looking like it was more military designed. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they have one of their motherships. This was a weird one, and this took a while to figure out. This, we found this out in California, thanks to a bunch of witnesses out there. You, a lot of people see these rectangular rectangular craft. Yeah, those are really big. You hear them all Yeah, they're huge. Yeah, they're huge. Well, sometimes they'll have like three bumps on top and one bump on the bottom. Sometimes they'll have five bumps on top and two bumps on the bottom. Sometimes there'll be three bumps on the bottom and two bumps on top. Well, we couldn't figure out what it was. Well, a lady was out there videotaping one day, and guess what it is? The saucers actually land and merge into the ship. 
and become part of the ship. It's like the, the skin itself melds to the ship. Oh, wow. And it makes a hump. Where the top of the saucer is makes a hump. So depending on how many saucers are docked to the craft is how many humps appears on the craft. Because hmm. so, we kept thinking they were different craft. It's actually one type of craft with just different amounts of, of, of saucers on board. Wow. That was one of the weirdest things to find out, but we know that belongs to the greys. We know that the humans fly small triangles and big triangles. Those big U triangles, they say that are four, five, six miles across, those belong to the human-type aliens. Uh, they're big, huge, monstrous thing. Most people describe them like of like 16 aircraft carriers long and five aircraft carriers tall and five or, or 16 aircraft carriers wide. Uh, they're huge. I mean, two, three, four miles. Uh, they're huge-ass craft. Uh, and then the uh, – the rep and, and they have a small uh, triangle they use. They also have – a teardrop and an egg drop shaped craft they use like probes. Um, and then the reptilians have what we call an elongated saucer. It's like somebody took a saucer and grabbed it on two sides and stretched it out. Mm -hmm. What's funny about it is both your small and large craft look like that. Uh, they have small, like three or four small versions of it, and then they have one huge version of it uh, that's several miles across. It's a mothership too. And, uh, and then there's a lot of different type probe and orb ships, but basically... That's, that's pretty much all the big ships anybody describes is those three types. And in the small ships, the scout ships are all about five types, and then there's about probably 50 types of probe ships. Uh, but it lets you know that there's only really a few races visiting the planet. And from what we understand about the light beings, they don't need any physical technology. They can move through space and time just like anything. They don't, they don't have to actually have a technology to move. They can create with thought. So there's, they're, they're – and our – little limited intellect we'd have to think of them as gods but in reality they are extraterrestrials uh they actually say that they created the greys as a police force for this galaxy wow they said cool. they, well they said they came here from another galaxy and the war was in a the galaxy was in a big huge fight uh reptilian jumes all of them there was a big huge fight and the, the light beings came and basically created the, the the greys to help bring peace to the known galaxy. And there's a lot of contactees that talk about the councils and the council domes and the council cities. And, you know, here's a weird one for you. We've got like 300 contactees that have been to the council city. They all describe the world the same way. It's a big, huge world, four or five times the size of Earth with no physical land on it at all. It's all water. The only thing that you see is one huge city. They said the city's about the size of the – might be the size of a moon, like mm -hmm. the size of our moon. And it just floats around the planet. That's all it does. It moves around on the planet. Uh, and it's supposed to be where the council resides. They said the reason it's so big is because every race has a, uh, its own little like building for its own representation. Wow. And, and, and now here's what's interesting. The council chamber itself, if you've ever seen one of the Star Wars movies, I think it was the third one. Or the second one, whichever one where Yoda goes after the emperor. Mm -hmm. They describe that council room a lot like that where the, the, the chairs go up the wall and they can move and stuff. And at the very top of it, there's a dome, like a bubble that dips down into it. And in that bubble, it's completely full with water. And they actually say that's where all the amphibian races are actually at. And then underneath that, there's a table that goes across where the Council of 13 sits. Or I'm sorry, the Council of 15 sits. Oh. Uh, with the light beans being uh, sitting in the middle and the other races going. By the way, there are no human representation there. I mean, humans like us. We're not nowhere near that advanced yet to get anywhere near. I mean, they bring us there and they let us see it and they let us understand what's going on and they even let you participate to an extent. But we're not really represented. We're not, we're not even... 
in the grand scheme of things, I think they barely consider us to be sentient. Yeah. Uh, we're just so far down the food chain, you know, just, it's just, just and, where we are. And these but, are stories you're hearing, hearing from multiple people that don't know yeah. each other. And I mean, they're giving you the same descriptions yeah, and well, the same a lot thing. Of it's, uh, yeah. A lot of these stories come with artwork. They send me artwork along with it. Wow. Well, it's like the alphabet. You know, a lot of contactees have alphabets. Everybody originally thought these were the alien alphabets and they may be based on alien alphabets, but no contactee has the same alphabet, not one. Huh, that's amazing. They may share some same or si symbols sometimes, but no one, no two contactees have the same alphabet. So we posed the question to the, uh, actually, I think we said the reptilians to find out, or it might have been the greys, uh, to see why. The answer was basically is it, it, this is so that each contactee can keep what they want to keep secret. So they can keep a journal and a log without anybody being able to read it but them. Hmm. And let me tell you, I can't tell you how many contactees keep these journals, mostly females for some reason, but um, a lot of them keep them. I mean, a lot of them. And it's funny, they will send me their journal and they will send me a key with it so that I can decipher what the hell I'm reading. I always tell them, read it to me and send me an audio tape so I can listen to it while I'm driving. <laughs> Uh, well, it's that's, just easier on me that way. That's absolutely amazing. I never realized there was this much. How, how many cases do you get? I mean, how common is this? Or Well, the, the organization's investigated more than 15,000 cases, probably more than that. The 15,000 number's been around for about eight or nine years now. What it comes down to, like my Texas state director, he will probably talk to 100, 150 contactees this year. Okay, easy. He's probably himself in the last 10 years investigated more than 1,000 cases. Well, when you start times and that, how many directors we got, and then myself, I mean, I did, when I was with MUFON a decade ago, we did a, oh, a decade ago, about two decades ago, we did a, a 5,000 case study. We, we, now, we found 5,000 contactee cases worldwide and went through and did a comparison study of what we can find. That was actually the basis for the abduction criteria. Since then, ICAR has added all in more, that many more cases. But like this, this week alone, I had 14 people write to me. Wow. Uh, you know, so that, that's just to me, that's not to anybody else in the organization. And the more public we go, the more people we get. But then, you know, we run stuff like the blood type study, which a lot of people are interested in. And we have the reptilian, the gray, the human questionnaires, which are all ongoing projects. Mm -hmm. We have the job thing. We, we, we keep about seven or eight questionnaires going at all times. And this, John, is to help us define contactees that don't know their right. contactees. Uh, we're, we're using this so that we can figure out who the hell is what, like, um, like the blood type study. Um, I don't know how many people around the world are, are in, know this, but Rh negative just showed up about twenty-five or thirty-five thousand years ago. Before that, there was no Rh negative on the planet; it was all Rh positive. And Rh, the the, the acronym Rh is from the Reese's monkey. That's all it means. Rh plus means that you share two 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 percent of your original DNA with a Reese's monkey. Mm -hmm. Rh negative doesn't, by the way. They have no re relation to the Reese's monkey at all. Well, for a long time, no, scientists couldn't even figure out how this happened because uh, a mother with, that's positive with a father that's negative can't have children. It will kill the child. They had to come up with the antigenogen G gene. Damn. <laughs> antigenogen D gene. It's a vaccination they used to give you so that you could have children. Uh -huh. That's the whole reason why for so many years people had to get blood tests before they got married. Oh, okay. Yeah, now that's stopped now. For some reason, they said either through vaccinations or through natural selection, we've, our bodies have changed on its own. But for a long time, they couldn't, you know, that's what they had to do. You, you, had, to go, you had to go get a blood test 
and either you couldn't get married or you had to get the shot and that's how you would have a child um, because you know they just didn't get along so that's kind of weird to start off with well RH negative is only 15% of the world's population that's all it is uh, O negative is only 7% of the world's population but it's the only uni- it's the purest blood ever to exist on the planet and the only universal donor in other words, anybody on the planet can take O negative blood. Even people with rare AB negative can still take O negative. But O negative can only take O negative. They can't take any other blood but O negative. So here's something useful out of nowhere. Then we needed this too. 25,000 years ago when this came around and then, you know, bred up until recent times, we needed this. This is the reason why. Um, you know, we saved so many people in World War II in Vietnam, Korea, and all the other wars because RH negative can be pumped into the field and anybody can use it and be saved. That's fascinating. So, yeah, so we don't have they don't have to have your blood type on stock as long as they have that O negative. Uh, and they can say and it saved many, many, many lives because of it. So you have that. Well, when we started doing the poll on contactees, which is I think about 5,000 contactees have taken this poll and about 3,000 everyday people have taken this poll. We've, we learned something interesting. The overall majority of contactees, like 68% of them, turned out to be RH negative. So around 30% of them are RH positive, around 70% of them are RH negative. Well, that doesn't congeal with the planet because 85% of everybody is RH positive and only 15% of the world is RH negative. So it shows the, inter- the aliens have a particular interest in RH negative. Not exclusively, but particularly interest in RH negative. And RH negative people have different types of personalities than RH positive. They're more open-minded. They're usually more world-orientated. They're more one-government-orientated. Uh, they have a much different look overall of the planet than RH positive people do. Uh, and coincidence, I have no idea, but it's one of those things that we are looking into. Also, it RH negative is a mutation. Well, come to find out that out of the 70% of people, the contactees that have RH negative, uh, 60% of those people turned out to be uh, O negative. So not only do they have a particular interest in RH negative, they have a bigger particular interest in uh, O negative. And then on top of that, green eyes are a mutation that just mutated somewhere about twenty or 30,000 years ago, popped up out of nowhere. Before that, there was only brown and blue. And everybody says that they're made you know, simply because you know, brown-eyed people marry green-eyed people, right. blue-eyed people, they have green eyes. Okay. Well, how come for two million years before that they didn't have them? Why wasn't it mutating them? What triggered the mutation? And how come 60% of all contactees have green eyes? Do you know almost almost everybody that's RH negative is green eyed? That's amazing. It's like eighty eight percent. Yeah, and this is these are doctors' facts, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. You can go look this up for your site on the on the blood testing. Almost eighty eight percent of all RH negative are green eyed. Um, it's a weird coincidence. And then there's some other really weird coincidences. Come to find out that South America and Central America are ninety nine point nine percent O. Now, if you believe in the out of Africa theory, then you should see a nice, even blood mixture across the planet. Uh, not a, a whole continent that's 99% O. Right. That means they're just so, there by themselves and never been with anybody. <laughs> well, the two, the three doctors that we originally started working with this on, because, you know, I was a lot about this I didn't understand, so I was contacting these different doctors. 
when I sent him this information, he's like, what the hell are you talking about? I said, well, this is what it says. This is what those two studies said that y'all did. So he went back and checked it. He's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. He said, so if we were born out of Africa, meaning that mom had A and dad had B, then we would have A and B and AB, and we wouldn't have O. Okay, there would be no need for it. And eventually we might have had AB negative and A you know, negative, but, but still there would have been any O. So what he thinks really happened is he thinks a group started in Africa probably with A blood type. Another group started maybe in Europe somewhere with B blood type, and another group started in uh, South America with O. Somewhere along the line, maybe when the land bridge was up on the Barren Straits, they all met together, and that's what created the healthy population that's alive today because genetic studies proved one thing for sure. Two, two parents cannot co co create a healthy population of 7 billion. The very minimum you would have had to start off with is 3,600 to create a population of actually 6 billion. Uh, for 7 billion, would have had to be closer to about 5,000. So there was no way that 5,000 people just appeared on an African savanna and survived. It's, it's an impossibility. The lions, the tigers, and the apes would have killed them. So what they really think happened is that. They think a group started in Africa, met with a group in Europe, and they bred together, and that's what created the AB. Those groups eventually met with the O people as they were migrating this way, and, that's, you know, and then they got together. And uh, that's why we have a healthy population today because we had three different blood types with three different genomes that bred together that created the population that lives on the planet today. And because of this, ICAR is getting an honorable mention in a peer body review that's being done because the three scientists that we were dealing with this are actually going to present this in a peer review study this year. Uh, and we will get partial credit for finding the, the data out for them. Uh, but they're saying it's going to re rewrite evolution on the planet. Oh, it's absolutely amazing. But what I find more funny about this than that is, isn't it possible that the human aliens are A, the reptilians are B, and the greys are O? Yeah, Since they're all interbred with us. Yeah, that could very uh, well be too. So, you know, you got to kind of stop and go, okay, there's a lot more going on here than anybody realized. That's why I give, you know, some of the shows a hard time on TV. You know, I'm saying that's why I said, you know, a lot of these these TV shows are simply not doing their homework. They're missing too much of this good data. You know, well, here's another one for you. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Egyptian emperors had long heads. A lot of the emperors had this weird, they said it was a disease that made them have this long head. Yeah. Well, a true human alien has a long head. See, they don't look just like us. Their faces are kind of like us, but they have a different color eye, different kind of pupil. And their heads are longer than ours. I mean, the basic shape of their face is the same as ours, except it's bigger. Mm -hmm. But when you look at their head, if you stand on a sideways, you'll notice their head goes back about a foot, whereas ours goes back, you know, four or five inches. Right. Uh, well, that's what the Egyptians had. And the Egyptians said that's who was messing with them in their text until the greys came along 2,000 years later. They said that was the dominance in their text. Well, when you get over to um, South America, the Naskins were boarding their kid to make their children look like their gods. Well, originally we thought that was Gray's head because everybody said they had a great big head. But Gray's do have a great big head, but it's, it kind of goes upward and back. Not It doesn't just go longwards back. Well, the Naskin children's heads looked like the Egyptian pharaoh's heads. Right. They, were, they were narrow and long, which suggests that the uh, alien, the human-type aliens were intervening with the Naskins. See, see, we're learning this now. Now that we have some, some, some somewhat fact data to go on, on, on these different aliens, we can start to look around the world and see who was doing what and when. 
Um, because now we actually, you know, have some data to go backwards and look and say, okay, well, this was reptilian, this was human, this was gray. And, and now we know with the grays, you don't see a gray until about 3,500 years ago when it appears on a, a, a hieroglyph in an Egyptian uh, tomb. And then after that, you start hearing different races talk about but not until then. So it looks like the humans and reptilians were here quite a bit longer than the greys were. Uh, the greys seem to show up later on and, and then get involved. But now it seems like all three of them are involved and they all got their damn DNA in our society and, and it's weird. And something for the listeners to think about, you know, when you're breeding animals, you'll breed the best two animals together to get the even greater animal. Eventually, you'll create an animal that surpasses its original genome. So here you now have a society that has part gray in it, part reptilian and part human that are keep interbreeding back with each other. Like, you know, the reptilian child may have breed with another reptilian child and create a better reptilian child. That child may marry a gray child and have children. That child may marry a human child and have children. And it may go all the way back and marry a reptilian child and have a child. They're creating a new species on the planet. But more importantly, eventually they were surpassed their masters. And it might be why the aliens are so damn interested in us. And they might be why they want to keep such an eye on us because it may take us a billion years to achieve this, but we may surpass them one day. We may become the new light beings oh, okay. in a billion years from now. So wouldn't you want to know that that race was friends with you or favorable to you? Yes. Because, you know, in the Greys' evolution, a lot of science and a lot of people think the Greys are at the peak of their evolution. They're at the pinnacle of their evolution. And that's as far as they're going to evolve, uh, which may true, may not be true. We don't know. But by them entering their DNA with us and the reptilians and the other humans, it may give us that spark that pushes us beyond them. You know, and, and, and humans are quick. I mean, we're dumb, but we're smart at the same time. We learn things quick. We implement them quick. We've changed the planet majorly in just 100 years. Um, for the good or bad, we have done it. So, you know, all of this is out there, and we just need to remember, you know, that there's more going on than we realize. There's way, way more, much, way more data than most people realize, and uh, we just need to be vigilant. You know, all the contactees you've dealt with, Joe, has there ever been any sort of physical evidence? Has anybody ever had anything? Well, well you got the implant evidence, you know, uh, that Daryl Sims and Dr. Lear and a few other people have worked on. So that that's physical, tangible evidence. We've seen implants. Uh, like there's been a couple of these implants there. They basically look like little stainless steel BBs. Right. Problem is, is the mineral is not from Earth. Some of them haven't even been identified. They don't know what the the mineral mineral is. Some of it is definitely minerals found in meteorites, um, but none of it is native to Earth. So, how to first off, how did it get in the person's body, and secondly, where did it come from? Mm-hmm. You know, if it's not from Earth, and, and how did it get in? You know, because somebody say, oh, well, what? It's a meteorite. That's how it got in. What the meteorite hit the person didn't kill him. Come on. Exactly. You know, I mean, these things, are, even a micrometeorite hit you, it's going to split you in half. So I'm thinking, oh, no, 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 that's not making sense. Uh, and they're just little stainless steel. I mean, that's what I call them, little stainless steel pellets. But uh, still, they defy explanation. But didn't and they have a membrane stuff. on them, too, that they, that I think it was Dr. Lear that says he could barely cut through this thing? Yeah, actually, they use a membrane that's formed from your own chemistry um, so that the body doesn't reject it. And then the implant is put inside of it. At least some of the implants are put inside of it. Uh, that way the body doesn't reject the implant. It, as far as it's concerned, it's it's like a little tumor in your body that's not bad for you. 
It just it just ignores it because it's your own. There's really no way to explain that other than this. I mean, their science has got no way to explain that away, do they? No, they don't. They they have no way to explain that away. Just like uh, that that European doctor was cutting in that lady because she had something in her arm, and he was going to remove it, and the damn thing moved and went up her arm. Huh. So so he went up there and it moved again. So then he tied her arm off to try to stop it, and then it got way down by her heart, so they left it alone. Well, I hadn't uh, heard of that. That's interesting. Yeah, well, that's not even the first one. There's been a couple of implants that have been tried to have been taken that move. Um, they seem to be intelligent or under intelligent control. Wow. Lear, Lear talks about one, too. He's got one he, he talks about. It just kind of kept trying to snake off. You know, you run into that kind of stuff. But in all fairness, most contactees don't have implants. Usually when you do find an implant, it's like a V-chip and it's uh, you know government implant. Uh, it's like a GPS and, and basically what it is, it's, it's GPS and all your medical records on a little bitty tiny chip. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most Americans now are familiar with the V chip. They wouldn't have been a decade ago, but you know, most people are now cause now you can put them in your dogs. Uh, pretty soon there's going to be a bill in Congress where you have to put them in your kid if they're under 18. Yeah. That's a bunch uh, of, that's a bunch of crap. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm so tore with that too, John, because part of me says, okay, it's a good idea. Put chips in your children and then you'll always know where your kid is. You can just Going, you, you know, there'll be an app for your phone. You type in GPS. There's your son. That's your daughter, going too far. <laughs> so that's a good thing for young kids and small kids and stuff like that. Okay, the problem for me is if they start chipping these kids young, because uh, they're never going to get it into adults because adults just ain't going to go for it. If they start chipping them young, a lot of the kids when they become 18, 19, 20 are not going to have them removed. So eventually, after a couple of generations, everybody will be chipped and everybody will have a chip mm-hmm. because they, they won't remove them. Uh, you know, because the way the government worded it is, yeah, you keep the chip till you're 17, and at 17, you can have the chip removed. Um, and but you know, a lot of people won't. A lot of people will keep it, and and there are some big advantages to it because, you know, if, if somebody's kidnapped, you know, right where they are yeah. at the moment, and I mean, there are big advantages to it. But the government always knows where you are. Yeah, that there way. are advantages, so, yeah. but I I don't know. I think that's just invading your privacy just way oh, too I agree. much. But uh, real quick here, we're I know you're getting tired there, too. Oh, that's okay. You were talking about uh, Barney and Betty Hill that you had some oh. uh, all-new information on that. you want to hit on that? I'm glad you brought that up. This this um, this thing is, is, is in itself. You know, I've been talking about the Hills for a while, and, and I know it aggravates uh, a lot of people in the field. Fortunately for me, a lot of people in the field have now picked up on my theory of the Hills and actually endorse it. But in the beginning, it was kind of hard. Make a long story short, you know, I had been I had been hearing about the hills for a long time, and I do abduction research. So finally, one of my investigators said, "Joe, why don't we just do a full out, blown out investigation on the hills?" Well, he knew a guy who had all of Betty and Barney Hill's original regression tapes, which I still have, by the way. Um, um, I got copies of them and put them in my computer, and we started listening. And as I was listening, I, I was I was hearing distinctively different things. Like there was three sets of memories. Uh, you know, there's the actual memory of them being awake and conscious. There's what they remember in their dreams, and that, that's what they remember in their hypnosis. Well, they weren't congelant. You know, if what really happened really happened, the three sets of memories should be fairly close together. But they weren't. So then I started doing a lot more research, and I found out that in Canada, the day before the hills were abducted in the United States, the, they lost a whole day. They drove into town, and they checked into a hotel. Okay. And he knows what I was on When you check into a hotel, you've got the sign to, to check in. So they check in, they check out, they have breakfast. They do not remember the name of the hotel that they checked into. They do not remember seeing the sign when they checked out. 
They said they went across the street and had breakfast. They do not remember what they had for breakfast or what the name of the place they had breakfast for. So anyway, they were getting ready to leave after that. When they got ready to leave, they decided they were going to ask this gentleman for directions. One describes him as an Irish guy, big, tall, red-headed Irish guy. The other one describes him as a black cop. <laughs> a little different this is, there. <laughs> yeah, this is classic 1960s alien abduction. Missing time, uh, you know, things don't look right, cover memories, the whole nine yards. I mean, this is classic, classic alien abduction. So I'm like, well, why doesn't anybody ever talk about what happened to him in Canada? So I listened to everything they had to say about that, and I listened to him in other interviews, and, and it really does sound like classic alien abduction. So I'm listening to what happens in Connecticut, or is it Connecticut, wherever it is. Uh, so they're driving downhill. They see this thing in the sky, and all of a sudden they get pulled over. Four guys walk up to the four, four men, not aliens. They describe them as men, military men, walk up to the car, and remove them from the car and walk them to the spaceship and then walk them up the stairs into the craft. Okay, first off, that was the very first time I'd ever heard of anybody being taken in a craft like that ever to date. Mm. Uh, so I found that interesting. Well, every interview you ever hear Barney in, whether it's under regression or it's, it's regular memory or anything, he always says the same thing. They were dressed in black boots, black pants, black shirts, and black duck-billed caps. This is typical Black ops operation, DWI, I mean, a D, whatever you call them, mm -hmm. a DEA, whatever, just straight out black ops. That's, that's how they dress. They still dress that way today. Um, so I found that very suspicious. Then they start talking about the hair, blood, and skin samples they've taken. She said they used a razor scalpel to take skin samples and skin flake. They used a needle to take blood. Uh, you know, they took other kind of samples, other fluid samples, and they use conventional technologies. She talks about pull-out drawers on board a spacecraft. Mm -hmm. You know, no, I'm not thinking you got pull-out drawers on board a spacecraft because they might well fly open. Pull-down, roll-down maps. Okay, um, things like this. Books that open and close paper books with hard backs. This is all typical 1960s terrestrial technology. None of this would be considered extraterrestrial technology. True. So the more you listen to it, the more you're thinking, well, wait a minute. Something else is here. Then when she really starts describing the procedures and he describes the procedures, it really sounds like CDC uh, you know, control series where they come in to check for contaminants. That's what it sounds like. So what it sounds like really happened was the hills were abducted in Canada. When they got back to the U.S., the U.S. already knew they had been taken. They, they flagged them on a nice section of the road. They picked them up and they ran. They, the hills may have been the first military abduction or at least the first recorded military abduction. And more importantly than that, and more, more suspiciously than that, Barney was quite good friends with a lot of Air Force people. One even lived in his house, okay? And he was friends with several key people. You know, one was a colonel in the Air Force, a high-ranking, uh, um, worked in special services for the Air Force, black ops, basically. Best friends with Barney. Also, Barney had mental problems his whole life, which is typical for a contactee, being in and out of, you know, having mental problems. Mm -hmm. uh, he was also the one that got to meet the president of the United States. Uh, he's the one that moved the Air Force guys in. He's the one that the Air Force guys were interested in. So really, more so than even that, the fact that it was a mill lab, I really think Barney was the abductee. Betty was the righty. You know, right. a lot of times in abductions, there'll be one that's abducted and one that's just there. 
And that's really what it sounds like. It really sounds like that's what was going on. Oh, so sometimes and, they'll just take one person? Well, like in a husband and wife, a lot of times the, the, the wife's the contact D. They'll, they'll bring the husband along sometimes, but, but they're not actually the contact D. Oh, okay. Uh, and a lot of times they'll just zap them or sit them there and let them kind of walk around and mill around like in a daze or something, which is, by the way, what Betty describes most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and she may have been a contact D, but bottom line is what happened in the United States from both of their accounts sounds like a military abduction. It sounds like military equipment, uh, military technology, and more importantly, it sounds like period technology, technology of the time. And then she talks about uh, one thing. Uh, it sounds like an epidural. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, well, they had them back then. They just weren't in regular doctors. Actually, they had quite a few things back then that didn't make regular hospitals for almost a decade later, but they did. Most people didn't know we had vacuum pumps to remove blood back then or feel lasers. They were big, don't mind me, but they were big, but we had them. Um, so, you know, a lot of this stuff is just, she describes as terrestrial technology. And um, so it didn't make any sense to me because, you know, when the greys take you or any of the other races take you, the greys technology is far more advanced than that. I mean, the, like I told exactly. you, the, the tables mauled to you. You know, she's talking about stainless steel top tables. Wait, uh, swinging double doors. I've never heard of any of this in, a, in, a, in an extraterrestrial spacecraft before. And it wouldn't even make sense. And then there's the star map. You know, I know Stan Friedman thinks it's the greatest thing ever, but there's no basis for anything on the star map. Where did she get the point of reference from? She says it herself. They showed her stars on a map. Mm-hmm. Okay. On a matter of fact, she says a pull-down map of the wall. Um, so where was the point of reference? How did you know where you were on that map? So how could you ever draw a coherent map again if you didn't know the point of reference? You know, was it their home world? Was it our home world? Was it something in between? There is no point of reference. Without a point of reference, the map is useless. You know, they're trying to say that she, she. I'll tell you what, I can come right now to anybody who wants to try this. I can, I can get a piece of paper and make seven or eight dots on it, right? Just random dots and put it to the night sky and I will eventually find a match for those dots because right. there's that many dots in our sky. Uh, so, you know, doing it that way, you're going to find something. But legitimately, there is no point of reference. So... If you don't know where the aliens' home world is, how in the hell are you going to know where the map originates from? Yes. Uh, you know, or what the point of reference star is. So the map is really useless. Um, you know, and I've challenged Stanton on that, which, by the way, he gets really mad about. But <laughs> I've challenged him on that many times because there is no real way that you can prove this map as being legit. And uh, frankly, anybody can make a star map. So you, you got to take it for what it is. And when you get right down to the interview and the types of technology they talk about, they talk about conventional technology. They really do. I'd never thought of that before you said that. But yeah. now, from what I know from this already listening, you're absolutely right. I mean, 100% right. Did, yeah. And didn't she have a book too? Wasn't that the one where she wanted to take a book and they said she could, but then she couldn't at the end or something? Yeah, that she had to give it back. Yeah, why would they, they have a book? <laughs> yeah, they had, they had a regular book too. Nothing special, just an everyday book. Now, that's that's a big parallel. That means some other race decided to put their stuff down in a paperback-bound book. Yeah, and what are the odds of that? Then, yeah, what are the odds of that? Especially a race that can travel across time and space. You'd think there'd be something more. Like today, we have pads. You can bet your ass our astronauts will have pads on board. They're not going to have books. They may have no books for handwriting, but probably not. They're going to probably have pads. Uh, you know, they're going to probably have their little iPad up on that thing with them where they can float around, tap on it, write on it, and do whatever um, because we're moving away from paper. 
you know, because we don't want to kill trees anymore. So we're moving away from paper. So you got to think races that are very advanced, especially telepathic races, we're probably not using that type of technology. It sounds like, you know, a military book. And even some of the stuff she describes about the book sounds military. Like I said, that book, I never thought that book made any sense when I was thinking about that. (laughs) And then, well, everybody always tells me, well, she describes an extraterrestrial. Well, yeah, she does. But it's because it's an overlay of memories. She's confusing the memories from Canada where she was actually abducted with the memories of the of of what happened in a military case, and it made total sense to me once I realized that. Once I realized they were overlaying memories, I knew exactly what had happened. They were taken in Canada, and they were taken in the United States by the military. And the two sets of it's two distinctively different memories that are bleeding over each other, and you can see that in the regression. You can actually see it. So, you know, for me, it was a much different case. And in all fairness, I don't want to hate on the investigators because no one knew about military abductions back then, and no one would even have thought back then that the government would even do something right. like that. You know, but now we know better than that. We know the government does stuff like that. So, it made much more sense. The only thing that doesn't make sense to me today is why they fight it so hard. Why that? Why would Kathleen Maldron or Stan Friedman fight this so hard? Because it is a much more plausible explanation for what went on. It really takes all of the memories into account. It takes all of their own testimonies into account. And it does show a much more plausible, much more agreeable theory to the research data we know today. It actually really does. So I, I'm always kind of floored why they fight me so hard on it. And Kathleen Maldron did admit to the fact, which I thought was funny, uh, she told Melinda Leslie that, oh, well, yeah, after that one time they had been military abducted. Yeah, all right, well, you goofball, if you believe that they were abducted in Canada, why didn't you think what happened the next day was military? Mm-hmm. So you got to – she even contradicts herself. I really think in her case it has more to do with I had already written a book and I'm stuck with it. And wait, and more importantly than that, there are contradictions in the books that Betty and Barney originally wrote in the one Kathleen Maldron wrote. There's several. Matter of fact, on my website somewhere is a list of them. We sent it to her. We made a whole list of everything we found that was wrong and sent it to Kathleen Maldron and gave her a chance to try to explain it. Wow, there were so many differences between the two books. I'm like, wait a minute. I mean, you're, they said this happened. Now you're saying this happened. You know, So they actually have even changed the story somewhat to try to fit more modern era uh, with that makes no sense at all. And it, the whole thing didn't make any sense to me what they were doing. I was like, damn. So I really think in this case it came down to I need to sell some books and that's what it really came down to. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think it came down to the truth of what was really going on. Um, and like I told her, I said, you should write a book about this. It would be a much bigger seller. I said, come on, these poor people got, uh, were alien abducted, messed with the military their whole life. I mean, he had... Well, they live right there by the Air Force Base. He had all kind of Air Force friends. And what was weird about it is he had high-ranking Air Force friends. Mm -hmm. Remember, he was supposed to be a postman. Okay? But Mm -hmm. yet, he got to mingle with presidents. He knew high-ranking military officials. Why is that? Yeah, it sounds like like somebody knew he was an abductee. Somebody, Somebody close to him knew he was an abductee, and they were watching him. And that's why they were watching him. They were waiting for a chance to military abduct him, and they finally got him. I think, and I think that's why the Air Force person was living with him, so that they would know when they were coming and oh, going. Yeah, and just, moving. just as keepers, so they knew exactly yeah. what was going on. So they knew exactly what was going on. And I find it weird that an Air Force guy leaked the story. Um, you know, so the whole thing just stinks. And, and when something stinks that bad, there's usually a pile laying around. You know, so. 
personally, I, I never understood why they fought me so hard on it. Like I told you, when I told George Norrie about it, he was like, you'll never change my mind. And, of course, he has a different opinion about the case now. And so do a lot of researchers in the field. Yeah, actually, you just changed my mind. I mean, it's, it's, it's logical. It, it fits perfectly. Yeah, and I just, you know, and I always told everybody, well, y'all can fight me on this. I said, but eventually this will be the accepted theory for the Hills. I said, and I was being real nice to Kathleen. I said, Kathleen, you should really think about it. I said, because one day it will take over the story you're saying. I said, because it's more plausible. It incorporates everything the Hill says, and what you says just don't. And it's like the dress thing. Now they try to tell me about evidence on the dress. Okay. First off, they threw this dress in the garbage can, okay? Then they went and took it out of the garbage can and put it in a closet for, I don't know, 25 years, mm -hmm. and then they get an analysis on it. Okay. Okay. Give me a break. I mean, what do you, what do you want me to do with that analysis? It's totally and utterly useless. It's uh, sorry about the phone there, guys. Apparently, okay. <laughs> trying to find us. Uh, but it is. It's it's totally and utterly useless. I mean, I don't know what you're going to do with that. So, you know, and I, I'm very hard on this because, I, you know, we do talk about a subject that is is very very out there to start off with, and I do prefer to stick as much to real evidence as I can. I don't I don't like hypotheses. I don't like beating around a bush. That's why we do comparison studies because, as a researcher, I need real evidence. I, I you know I, I can't. I can accept anything, but I can't go to the general public and say I want you to believe because I don't believe in the believe world, in the word. Correct. Uh, believe to me means you worship God. That's a belief system. ET is not a belief system. You either know the suckers are on the planet or you don't. You've either seen enough evidence to let you know they're really here or you haven't. Or you've seen one or you haven't. But there's no real in-between. It drives me crazy when people say I believe in ET. I'm like, next thing you'll be preaching to him. <laughs> there you go. That's absolutely fascinating, Joe. I mean, you covered a lot of stuff here I had no idea about. Well, you know, we try to keep a wide range of stuff on topic. You know, um, like I was telling you earlier, I'm working with Larry and Peter, and I can't wait to send all this, this data I got for Peter over, uh, all this voice stress analysis. By the way, anyone listening, I did voice stress analysis on Larry Warren. He passed. Uh, I just thought I'd throw that out there. Uh, it doesn't mean exactly what happened happened, but it does mean something happened. Uh, and that is something else we're working on right now is what may have happened. I do think there might have been some Milab stuff in uh, Larry Warren because there was um, sodium amethyl found, okay. uh, which, is, which is a drug used to uh, – well, it's a drug used they use when they do hypnosis to change people's memories is what it's used for. So that's to plant a story or a cover story yeah. in your head. Yeah, sodium – I don't want people to get confused because sodium pentothal is to help retrieve memories. Sodium amethyl is to help block memories. Okay, uh, and these these were found in blood, and they're not the only people we found this in. Other mill labs have had sodium amethyl, so we know it's one of the way government the government does block memories. They use sodium amethyl, one of the ways, by the way. So sure gover government will do this, and they they do it to people they know that have actually been contactees, yeah. and they experiment on them, and then they put memories back on their heads and put them back. Yeah. Now, I will tell you something else I find interesting. From time to time, the greys or the reptilian, the humans will show up. And we've heard this a lot. Sometimes they will just come hang out and watch what's going on. Um, you know, they'll come hang out with, with the gray, with the, the, the military people and watch. What's, they don't actually work with them, but they'll be watching. Occasionally, contactees from all three races have told me if they're doing something that, that is not comfortable for the contactee or the, the alien feels is not what they should be doing, they will actually remove them, take them from the government and put them back home. Wow. 
Um, and, you know, the first time I heard that, I'm like, yeah, this is some stupid sci-fi stuff. Y'all smoking crack. Get over this. <laughs> and really, I mean, I'm like that on a lot of stuff. I'm like, get out of here. I'm, I'm hard. You got to prove stuff. I mean, really hardcore about this. And um, after enough cases, I realized, yeah, occasionally they do come in and take people. He has a case in Golf Breeze. There was a hundred and something people in this one case, all of them with uh, recall, by the way. Um, there was a, a group of, uh, well, make a long story short, they took them to a base underneath Eglin Air Force Base. It was about 175 people. There was this one room with this big round silver stirrup looking thing. It was a big round thing and, and it had uh, 10, or eight, 10 or 12 chairs and then each chair, chair was like a stirrup. And each chair had a woman in it in the stirrups and they had this big, tall, skinny, red-headed doctor walking around. Everybody thinks he's a hybrid, by the way. Uh, he's like 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, uh, he's weird looking. His eyes look kind of strange. And I cannot tell you how many times people have, how many contactees have described this doctor to me. The only major difference you ever hear is his hair color is slightly different from time to time. But the overall description is identically the same. Well, sometimes he'll be doing things to contactees that the aliens are not happy with, and they will come in and take them. And in this case, all 175 people described this one guy almost identically. Yeah, what are the odds and, of that? Yeah, not only that, they described the tables. Uh, some of the other stuff that was seen in the building, um, you know, and when you're there, you definitely get a sense that this is a terrestrial. Even though graves were seen, you definitely get a sense that this is a terrestrial building. Uh, cinder block walls, swinging glass. I mean, swinging plastic doors, uh, floors. You know, concrete floors. It just sounds like a government facility, classic government facility, really. Um, and you know, when people are describing, it, they all describe it the same way. And it was such a weird event because there were so many people that reported they were on the beach when it happened. And so many people had reported what had happened on the beach that we had to look into the case, and that's what we found. And uh, um, it's, it's a very, very strange scenario how that works. But they do get involved, and they don't like them screwing around to, but so far. And they say, okay, that's enough. Stop. Uh, I guess for two reasons. One, I don't think they actually want them hurting the contactees, and two – I don't think they want the government getting certain information. I honestly don't think the government knows much more than any long-term researcher with the status that we're doing. All right. Um, because there's just no need for the government to know. Um, you know, unless they're being taken, there's no need for them to know. ET, I have to say this bluntly, ET does not seem to care about anybody else on the planet but the contactees. They seem to be very nonchalant about it. Like, uh, well, they're just human. Screw them. Yeah. And, and the, and the drive this home, you know, it's rare we get scenarios that are the same. Uh, we get data that's the same, like everyday experiment. Let me put it in perspective, like the milking machine. A lot of guys will describe the milking machine. Mm -hmm. This is basically sperm removal is what this is. They put you down on the table. They strap this thing to you and, you know, blah, blah, blah mm -hmm. goes on. Right. Uh, well, lots of guys describe this. And they describe the machine identically too, which is, which, is, which is a cool thing because we know it's real then, you know, because we talk about the milking machine, but we never say what it looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, so a lot of guys, when they describe it, describe it the same way. Uh, you know, they're describing this identically the same way. And you, you hear this in other areas. Um, oh hell, where was I going now? I lost my train of thought. You know, getting old is a bitch, y'all. That's all I got to say. <laughs> no, I, there was a reason I was saying it because it was something I wanted to drive home to y'all. Now I just, it just went right out of my head. Uh, well, if I remember, I'll bring it back, but damn. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, see, y'all take your vitamins, take your pills. Do whatever you got to do. Keep your brain going the way it should be going. Oh, no, it's important, too, and it's going to make me crazy now. <laughs> uh, it's going to make me totally crazy. I'll probably hear the archive, and then I'll remember what it was. <laughs>
but uh, it, it does. I mean, you get these comparison studies, and, and it's why we do comparison studies is so that we do know uh, some things are real and some things aren't. Oh, that's what it was. Uh, a lot of the the outcomes, though, what people talk about alien agendas and outcomes and why they're here, rarely ever match. But there is this thing called the Holocaust stream. Um, and about 25% of contactees have this fairly regularly. And they all describe it the same way, which is interesting, whether a city or not. But I'll use the one for Houston because it's always the one I use. And this is actually described by about nine different people. Okay. They say they're driving into Houston in a group with other people, by the way. Uh, they get to Houston and, you know, the lights are working, but there's no people around, nobody on the street, nobody walking around, but there's no cars in the middle of the street. The cars are parked on the side or parked wherever they want to be. There's no fires, nothing rampaging, no people running around. And they're driving through the city and every now and then they'll notice a broken window or something like that, but nothing of any real consequence, not like any blown up buildings or destroyed buildings. A lot of times they'll get out on the other side of town and they'll see like mass burials going on, like there's military out there burying people in mass. Um, and occasionally they say they'll run across a person they almost describe like from one of them zombie movies, uh, just insane like, but still. And, and so they, they, they describe this in great detail. Well, when you start asking contactees to ask the aliens what's going on, it sounds like they're discussing a pandemic where like 70 or 80 percent of the planet just gets wiped. Uh, and, and from what I understand, it's in less than seven days. Pretty much 80 to 85 percent of the planet bites the big one. And I think it's one of the reasons why contactees, I mean, researchers agree that it's five to 15 percent of the population because anybody who's done this research realizes that that's what they're talking about, about 85 percent of the population. And you have contactees now, saying this then? Oh, yeah. They, they, and they agree on it. That's wow. what's so freaky scary about it. But when you listen to them talk, it doesn't sound like right now. Uh, there's things you hear like when she, they were describing these lights that I just now started noticing. They just started using in Florida, which is weird. They had, they had, these lights were found nowhere. It's a type of stunt light they used. And, uh, and I had never seen them anywhere. I've been all over the country. And all of a sudden, about a month ago, I was in Florida, and I noticed they had just started using this type of stoplight. Now, the way they were talking, it was common and was all over the place. It's a stoplight that actually has displays information and stuff. And it can link to your car and display information to other things up the road. It's like a little mini computer. Uh, and, and, you know, it's futuristic stuff. Well, contactees seem to have a sense of, they say there's around 9 or 10 billion people on the planet when this happens. We're at 7 billion now. 9 to 10 billion, that's at least 100, 200 years in our future. Thank God. And <laughs> from the way they describe the cars and the other stuff, it does sound like, like you know, a couple of hundred years in the future. But they, they, they say the contactees are immune to it. Uh, it it's not going to affect them at all. When this comes down, they're just going to be left and, and you know the ETs will come take the ones that they're going to take off world and the ones that are going to leave here at the colony, they will. Uh, but that's what they talk about and they talk about it in great detail and it, and it just kind of freaks me out. But you know, when you hear in whatever city, like the girl from London, she was describing what happened, with the way London looked, it sounded just like the description of Houston. Wow. You know, there, there doesn't seem to be any real uh, – difference there other than you know occasionally they run in the military and occasionally they see a crazy person but other than that there doesn't seem to be anything else that's kind of creepy okay. my gosh i never heard nothing like that either yeah and those kind of things you know and we don't get into them too much because we like to keep them we like to keep them uh on the qt um just so we we got reference points but we have to put some of it out there so people that may be having these dreams can come forward and tell us about them. Uh, there's a lot actually a great deal more detail 
than that. I mean, they get into some really, really detailed stuff yeah. with with confrontations from the military to other things that they ran into to meeting points with the extraterrestrials. I mean, they get into some serious detail. And the funny part about that is one girl's telling me she, she kept feeling drawn to this area on this mountain. And she said while she was in Houston, she met a group of people uh, that seemed to have been working for the government. They, I mean, not for the government, but working for the ETs. They were out looking for contactees to help bring them back to this mountain. Well, I thought that was funny and kind of weird, but then I started asking other people, and a lot of other people said, oh, no, yeah, we, we have, that's where they're going to pick us up at. Wow, that's just amazing. <laughs> so all of them are saying this. And, and so the mountain, and actually they all name the mountain, wow. all of them. So the, the name is actually abduction criteria. It's not even that famous of a mountain. Mm -hmm. I guarantee you most people wouldn't even know this damn thing existed. I didn't until I looked it up. Uh, so it was kind of one of them things like, what the hell is this? So anytime I start getting stuff where we have you know, 50, 80, 100, 200, 300 people seeing and feeling the same things, I, I have to take it as evidence. And somebody once told me, well, that's not real evidence. I said, well, in, in the United States, that's enough to get you to death penalty. Yeah. I said, multiple eyewitnesses of any robbery, any murder, you're dead. You're gone. You're, you're done. You're over with. And think about this. Think about multi This is something else for my sightings friends out there because we know there's a double standard in evidence these days. Uh, when somebody tells you there's no real evidence, then say when, – when they tell you that, ask them how come eyewitness, uh, eyewitness testimony and videotape of someone being killed will get you to death penalty immediately, quickly, and swiftly. But yet if the same group of people videotaped a UFO taking somebody, oh, they're all crazy. Isn't Why that is true? That? <laughs> you know, you can have 50 people out there videotaping UFOs. They're all crazy. But if that same 50 people videotaped you out there robbing a convenience, so you're going to prison. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a big-time double standard in evidence, a big-time double standard in evidence. So I have a rule. If it's acceptable for criminal evidence, it's acceptable for us. So, true, it should uh, be. And, and that's the way it should be. As far as physical, tangible evidence, there are some. You know, there's burned locations. Like my wife, this is a good source of evidence. We're in Gulf Breeze, Florida one night. My son was three at the time. And uh, he's sitting on my wife's lap in the covers with the, with the, 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 the blanket over because it's kind of chilly out that night. It's kind of rainy too. It was weird. Um, it was like misting or something. All of a sudden, it quits missing. My son says, oh, my bug-eyed friends are coming. I'm like, what? I want to just smack him on the head when he said it too. <laughs> And uh, all of a sudden, it, behind a sand dune just lights up. I mean, brilliant white. So I jump up and run up on top of the sand dune, and this thing, this kind of box-looking thing just comes floating over. It looked like a mini Borg ship or something. comes floating over this thing. And uh, as it got over, it actually took a different shape. It looked more like a triangle. Um, and then we watched it as I watched it as it, you know, I ran back and sat down with my wife and then we watched it as it came over the top of us and my wife set my son down between us and uh, we watched it as it went out of the, over the golf. Now the whole time it quit raining while this thing was moving. Hmm. Once it got back over the golf again, it started misting again. So I noticed we get in the car, my wife's like rubbing her arm. She's got diamond patterns burnt from her wrist to where her sleeves are on her, sh on both arms. We took it to the hospital. We thought it was something major. They didn't know what the hell. It was. Hospital. We thought it was something major. They didn't know what the hell it was. They thought it was some kind of radiation burn or something. Huh. Next day, it, we took a picture of it. Next day, it was completely and utterly gone. It was like somebody took one of those um, them diamond grill things, mm -hmm. heated it up, and just wrapped it around her arms. Because wow. it was like that all the way around. It wasn't just on the surface, but it wasn't on her hand, and it wasn't on her face, and it wasn't on me or my son, and we were sitting next to her. 
So I'm assuming we got zapped that night and just don't remember it. So you personally have experienced this too then? Oh, yeah, yeah. Down in Golfery, we've experienced some wild stuff. Well, that's what actually made me a believer was Golfery's because until then I was still, even after 15 years of research and realizing that some of the research we were doing may have reflected in part of my life, I was still like, nah, 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 nah. I ain't believing it. I ain't believing it. Mm. Once you have that first experience, so it's kind of hard not to. And then we're real fortunate in the fact that we work with a lot of contactees and we work in a lot of hot spots. So sometimes we will put ourselves in positions where we know we're going to see something. Hmm. You know, we know there's going to be an experience. And they, and something more importantly, contactees become sensitive to where ET is a lot of times. That's why you'll hear contactees, oh, I was driving down the highway, la, 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 la. And I got this feeling and I went off down this field and bam, there they were because they were sensitive. And, and the bad part about this is, is they get, taken but they're not supposed to be taken uh, they will be sensing someone else's abduction and be uh. drawn to it and they'll drive themselves over there and you know of course once the aliens see you they're like well look you're not supposed to be here zap right. uh, you know and off you go and, and, and that, that's actually quite common we hear that a lot uh, we hear people all the time saying oh I'm just minding my own business next thing I know I'm, I'm in the middle of something um, it, it's like all the time, because people write to me all the time, oh, most abductions happen at night. Meh, that's wrong. That's not even close to the truth. Probably 55 to 65% of all abductions probably happen on your way to work. Oh, really? Or, or on your way to the grocery store or something like that, when you're fully consciously awake and aware. Um, I would probably say less than 15% happen while you're asleep in bed. Uh, for some reason, those were the ones that became popular, I guess, because it scared to be Jesus out of people. But um, in reality, it's probably less than about 15% are actually taken while you're in bed. Even at night, they usually take you when you're awake. Uh, and, and I think there's reasons why for that. You know, if you're an older guy with heart problems or something like that, and you wake up seeing a great, you'll probably have a heart attack <laughs> kick over right there. Exactly. Uh, you know, so I think, you know, I, I just, it's just a rare thing they take you when you're asleep. And everybody says the same thing. Even when they come take you to sleep, they wake you up ahead before they take you. Hmm. You know, they, it's like they want you to be conscious when this is going on. Uh, for whatever reason, they seem to want you to be conscious when this is going on. Because it would be easy for them to just knock you out, take you, leave you knocked out, put you back. You'd never even know. You know? if, it, if it's during the daytime, like if you're going somewhere, are people found out that they've been contacted because wherever they're going tells them they didn't show up for hours? Nope. It's like I was telling you earlier, like a girl with a hot dog. You see, they loop the time. So there's not actually any missing time. Okay. They actually physically – well, let me rephrase okay, this. Okay, right, Jay. You had Yeah, this that. is for the grays, but this is for the grays. Not the – the reptilian humans do it a little differently, but the, with the grays – uh, they can take you, basically move you out of time and then drop you back. So you're not going to actually miss any work or anything. You're just going to think you drove to work like you normally did. It's just in that particular case, the hot dog stand was closed. You know what? It's not the only time we've had that. One of my all-time favorite cases is it's two couples. This is such a freaky case. This happened 18 years ago, I think. Um, there's a couple living in California, a couple living in New York. Okay. The, both the wives get taken that night. Okay. Um, so the guy in California, some woman, his, he, he hears the phone ringing, right? It's like, I guess it's like four in the morning because I think it was like, I think, I think the girl in California said it was just becoming daylight. So it must have been like four in the morning California time. So he wakes up to his phone call of this woman just screaming. Well, you know, he don't know it's his wife because he thinks his wife's sleeping next to him. Well, she's screaming, at, where, the, where the hell are you? Where are you, baby? Are you? And um, come to find out, his wife was in bed 
in New York City with the man whose wife was in bed with the woman in Los Angeles. Oh, my God, you're kidding. The way it all starts out, the girl works, wakes up, right? She's in New York. I guess the sun came through the window or something. She wakes up, and she's noticing the room looks different. So she reaches over and starts pushing on her old man, you know, what's up, baby? And when he wakes up and looks at it, they both freaked, you know, because it wasn't his wife. It wasn't her husband. So you know she freaked. Uh, you're so serious, right? <laughs> oh, I'm dead serious. This is, a, this is a documented case. Oh, my God. Uh, so so they, they're just freaking. So she gets on the phone and she calls him. So he wakes up. When he wakes up, it wakes the other woman up. And, of course, she realizes now this ain't her husband. So she's freaking. So they're all freaking. So – he gives her the phone and she gives him the phone and they're talking, you know, and everybody's realizing now that somehow the two wives got swapped. Wow. <laughs> the really weird part about it is, is both the wives were wearing similar clothes at night. Uh, I think they said it was like a T-shirt and drawers. Uh, it was very similar, like white. I mean, everything looked pretty much the same. And the women looked pretty close to each other. Not identical, mind you, but mm -hmm. close. Uh, it looked like they – and they simply put it back. So everybody said, oh, it was a hoax. They flew out there. We checked. There was no train tickets, no airfare tickets, no nothing. And, uh, and, and this is the best part. Both of them had gone out that night so they could verify that they were in their city. The, the lady uh, and the guy in New York had had dinner with their family and then went out dancing with some friends of them and they didn't even get home till 2 a.m. All right. So and this happened, at, I guess, 7 o'clock their time. So that's like five hours. Uh, not even that. Or, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. About, about five hours. And they said when they got home, they were up for an, an hour or two. So they, she actually got taken around four a.m. in the morning or five a.m. in the morning. Uh, best we can tell, they just set them back in the wrong places. And where was the other one at? One was in New York, and where was the other? Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Wow. Completely opposite sides of the thing. And then there's another one where, and this was even a goofier one. There's a woman in California, woman in Japan. The woman in Japan wakes up one morning and she went to bed uh, in a T-shirt and a pair of drawers. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and Oh, wait, wait, I got it backwards. I got it backwards. The, the girl in California went to bed in a T-shirt and a pair of drawers and the girl in Japan went to bed in this little sexy-looking negligee oh, thing. Their clothes swapped, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Well, the reason they found out is a girl in Japan got up that morning. She's like, what the hell is this? I'm in a T-shirt and drawers. Well, the girl had her name written on a drawer on her drawers, I guess, because she had gone to camp or something. Uh -huh. So her name was an address was actually written on the drawer. So the woman contacted her from Japan and said, "I have your clothes." So the lady was like, "No, no, no!" But she said, "You know, it's kind of funny. I woke up in this." So she took a picture of what she's wearing and sent it to the woman. And sure enough, they swapped clothes. Wow! <laughs> now none of these women had ever met each other, knew each other, or anything. I mean, these are just every now and then ET screws up. <laughs> uh, I don't know why they do or how they even screwed up on that one because, I mean, that's an American woman and Japanese woman wearing two distinctive outfits. But apparently somebody screwed up. So, you know, you run into these kind of things that happen like that. But the, the, the swapping the people was – and it's not the first time we've heard about that. And then we've got cases where men and women were just dropped off on the side of the road. A hundred miles from their house. They don't remember where they got him. They just dumped him. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Well, look at Whitley Street. One of his cases, he talks about he's driving up the highway. Next thing he knows, he's sitting on the side of the highway between his house and the and the, and the camp. You don't know how he got there or why he got there. You know, and it's it's just a weird scenario. Um, you know, maybe they get rushed. Maybe they're in a hurry. Who knows what the hell it is. 
but that's it, it, they do every now and then they screw up like it always freaks me out when stuff like that happens you know? I mean I've, I've never ever heard anything like that that's just, yeah. <laughs> just it's crazy <laughs> yeah th those kind of cases just floor you when you hear them and when you can't find anything against them you have to kind of go damn um, and then sometimes I think E.T. does that for us maybe they, they do, do maybe they do it for snicks maybe they have a sense of humor <laughs> Well, I know they changed the way they do things because of the researchers. You know, the reason Missing Time has been going the way to Dodo Bird is because of the researchers. Uh -huh. All of them had changed their tactics because we realize when people were missing time, it was abductions. Well, they don't want us getting too smart, you know. Also, the same thing with the memories. By using cover memories, we were breaking cover memories. We knew they were fake memories. Using looped memories is much harder because the person a lot of times don't even know anything happened. Right. You know, and even when you find out something happened, you still got to break that loop memory, which to them is a real memory. So it's hard to break. Hmm. You know, those kind of things make it make it weird, make it, it make it hard. And But that shows you right there that E.T. has changed the way it does things directly according because of the, the, the uh, research is in the field. You know, so it shows you they pay attention. That's, um, that's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> It always freaks me out. And then, you know, like I tell everybody, when it comes to abduction research, take it with a grain of salt because we may change things. Like uh, a decade ago, I always thought the aliens abducted evenly. The mm -hmm. grays, reptilians, and humans abducted evenly. Well, we've done several polls since then and know we were wrong. The grays seem to abduct 60 to 70% of all the abductions are grays. The rest are split evenly between the reptilians and the humans. Uh, they seem to be about 15% each. Maybe a long time ago it was a higher percentage, but now it seems to have gone the other way. And the only reason we found that out was because of the question is. We, we ran the one on our site, and then with a couple other researchers we know, <clears throat> we had had it posted and asked only contactees take it. And uh, overwhelmingly, the amount of contactees were grazed. Overwhelmingly. It was, it was just flooring how much the difference was. <laughs> Uh, it was one of those things that we were kind of, we just weren't expecting, to be honest with you, Joe, we, uh, John, mm -hmm. we just weren't expecting it. We expected to find what we always thought, you know, it was a split, 33.3% right. across the board, and it wasn't. Uh, so that was, that was, so we had to correct ourselves, and I can honestly say this, as far as I know to date, we are the only organization to exist that will stop, say we were wrong, and correct ourselves. We do not have a fear of admitting that we have made a mistake or that we have found data that now suggests that something else was going on. Because when you're doing what we're doing, you can't take everything as gospel. And you have to understand that you're going to make mistakes and you're going to learn sometimes, like with the Hill case. The Hill case was misdiagnosed 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. we've, we've corrected that now. Instead of people fighting me in the field, they should go, all right, we do know what's going on now. Let's correct the case and move on. You know, instead of keeping it as an uh, as a wrong case, because it just makes all the rest of us look stupid. Right. You know, because once people hear me talk, they're like, "Well, wait a minute, Joe. Why are they fighting you about this?" So then it makes the rest of the field look like, "Well, y'all are ignorant. He's definitely got the right idea, and y'all are just stupid." I think that's why a lot of the big name you follow just decided to side with me because at, uh, I was doing the 60th anniversary at Roswell, and I had brought this up. And um, a lot of the audience definitely, about 95% of the audience definitely agreed with what, what I was saying. And the whole panel was up there. All the big-time ufologists were on the panel. So the questions started getting asked to them, and they just had to start agreeing. You know, they were like, oh, no, Joe seems like he's got a better plausible explanation because they weren't going to go against the general audience. But there's still, like I said, you know, Mr. Stanton, you know, Mrs. Martin and a few others out there that are hardcore Hill fans, but – I don't get it. 
people you know, come around because that evidence is amazing. I mean, like I say, after you said that, I instantly can re- I realize exactly what you mean. I mean, yeah. the map, the star map. You know, I never thought about that. That should have just been something projected on the wall or in the middle of space, probably not just a pull down projector type. Yeah, you know, it's just, it's just, you know, and then, and then, and see, that's one of the things that got Kathleen in trouble. In her book, she says it's some kind of glowing screen, but in the first book, they say it's a pull down map. Now, whoa, wait a minute here. Big difference. <laughs> big, big, big difference here. And, you know, they say one thing in the first book about the star map and another thing in the second one. So, you know, let's not change things to fit what you want to do so you can make some money. That just pisses me off. I'm like, uh-uh. Let, let's not, you know, and I'm hardcore. I'll, I'll plug anybody's book for them because, you know, I want people in the field to make money because it takes money to be in this field. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, I own my own business, so I, I can get away with a lot of stuff. But, um, you know, let's not just make stuff up. Let, let's be honest. There's enough of that already. <laughs> Definitely. Way too much of that. Yeah. You, if, you, if you're a rookie coming in this field and you go type in UFO or abduction on the Internet, you're lost. You're going to get basically three pages of nothing but BS and wish you never even looked at any of this. <laughs> That's very, very true. <laughs> You'll be like, oh, please. But, there's, you know, there's a lot of good researchers out there. I don't want to take away from any people that are doing good work because there are a lot of good people doing a lot of hard work in the field. There are a lot of shenanigans going on, and there is a lot of garbage Well, out just there. take everything I always tell everyone this, too. When you find something on the Internet, do more research. Take it with a grain of salt. Don't take it as the gospel. You know, never read something on the web and think it's true. But you, you, you know, you like, you like, to, you like to do a lot of paranormal investigation. Here's something for y'all as listeners, because I know John has a big paranormal uh, listening crowd, because of some of the remarks I see on the site. Um, if you have an interest in, well, vampires, fairies, werewolves, strange, weird sci-fi stuff, it's a good chance that you're a contactee. Oh really? Oh crap! Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. crap! <laughs> and paranormal events tend to run coherent god my english is bad today sorry y'all it's okay Uh, not enough sleep last night or something Uh, anyway um you will find a lot of paranormal activity with contactees you're kidding oh no now you're freaking me out (laughs) it's quite common actually and another little secret which i know is going to make a lot of people mad it's we're almost positive now that people who see UFOs are probably abductees or contactees. And the reason we say this now is a couple of key cases. One, the uh, the New York City case, the um, – uh, oh, man, what's her name? Mm. Anyway, it's where the ambassador from the UN seen the – seen her uh, floating out the window with the two Secret Service guys. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, re- I recall that one. I apologize. Linda Castillo. Um, I don't I want to miss her name, but – right. Uh, there's 22 million people in New York, people. Why didn't anybody else see it? Mm-hmm. Okay, these people that did see it, and one of the, I actually had the good fortune of getting ready, to, getting to interview one of the Secret Service guys. It never made the air because I was told, well, I'm not going to tell you what I was told, but I was basically told don't air it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had the good fortune of talking to him. He's definitely a contactee, definitely. I have no doubt that the other two were contactees. But more importantly, in 19, was it 94, 96? 92, somewhere up in there, there was a sighting over, over uh, Mexico City. Mexico City is the largest populated city in the world with 24 million Mexicans living there. 24 million. Right. Okay, living there. Um, One million people seeing this thing. It hovered over, over, New Me- over Mexico City for a whole day. The mayor seen it. The police chief seen it. The fire chief seen it. All kind of pastors and, and preachers seen it. They filmed it. I said there was close to 10,000 hours of videotape of this weird clear silver looking thing hanging in the sky 
Uh, and it all started over a bird flying into something that wasn't there and falling out the sky, which is a scene from uh, some movie. I forgot which one now. Um, a recent one, too. But mm-hmm. Anyway, make a long story short. Why did another 23 million people see it? It's there for 24 hours. Only that 1 million people seen it. Why didn't the rest of Mexico City see it? Because there probably aren't contactees in that million that seen it probably were. Wow. We, we think, we think, and this is a key word, think, that contactees are um, preconditioned to see them. Like on, a, like on a mass abduction, they'll see them just before they're taken or right after they're put back, which is what we think happened in Mexico City. We think it was a mass abduction, and they stayed there with the city while they were doing a mass abduction. But this isn't the only place this has happened. There are key cities in the United States, like when we were talking about the O'Hara case. Yeah. How many people are at O'Hara Airport? Why didn't only, what, six people see it, nine people see yeah, it? that's a huge, huge It's airport. a huge airport with tons of traffic going in and out of it. So, you know, when we really start looking into this, you know, we couldn't – we never could figure out why more people don't see them. They're flying all over the damn place. Mm-hmm. So we never could figure out why more people don't have sightings. Even after 911, sightings did go up, and that was because more people were looking up. But we really think it had more to do with more people were looking up, but more contactees were looking up. Um, everybody was a little nervous after 911 that a plane might fall out on your head or something. Yeah. Uh, so everybody was a tad bit nervous about it, especially if you lived in a big city near any kind of airports. You were kind of a little leery about it. Uh, so, you know, seeing that, you know, made us wonder. You know, we like the, uh, well, like the Belgium side in the Big Black Triangle. This thing spent like three days going all over Belgium. We had F-16 pilots see it. We had the, the UN knew about it. The NATO scrambled pilots to it. Uh, thousands of people across Belgium seen it. But the area it crossed, there was like 40, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, 17 million people in the, across the area it crossed, but yet only a few thousand seen it. It actually hovered over that one town in Belgium. There was 56,000 people living there, mm-hmm. like six people seen it. Matter of fact, what was so funny about that one, that's where the F-16 first engaged this thing at. And uh, no one seen it. Now, F-16s are noisy. I mean, they're no- especially when they got afterburners kicked in and they're going on target, they're noisy noisy. I mean, you can hear them suckers coming for a mile. And uh, no one noticed this thing. Hmm, kind of strange. <laughs> you know, and, and when you go back to the old world sightings, you know, you will hear like there's a sighting in London where 500 people seen it. One artist drew pictures of it, but the rest of London didn't see it. Why? I mean, they said these things were all over, <clears throat> but yet only a few hundred people seen it. Um, it it's, it's hard for me. And then like the – was it the Jeff Challenger, Jeff Chandler, whatever his name was, one of the astronauts. He was working on the Hubble telescope, and uh, the girl in the, in the bay is filming him working on the telescope. And you hear her go, what the bleep? <laughs> Something went between her and a camera. Uh-huh. But it was so close to the ship, you couldn't tell what it is. It just kind of blotted out the camera as it went by. And right as she said it, you hear Jeff turn around and say, what the f- is that? <laughs> it's just how he said it, too. And, uh, of course, NASA pretty much shut most of it down, but that was before the seven-second delay. Same thing with the STS-41 video when they're shooting that laser at the thing. That was also before the, the seven-second delay. That's why we managed to get video because back in the old days, people would record NASA missions. Mm-hmm. Now, with the seven-second delay, there's no re- reason to record it because you're never going to catch anything. But why didn't the rest of the shuttle astronauts see it? Why didn't the people on the ground at NASA see it? Uh, you know, Why didn't anybody see this thing but these two people? And how come you'll be in places like Florida or any other state for that matter – 
and there'll be a sighting in the middle of a town, but only a handful of people see it. So you you think that just the contactees, previous contactees, I, you see I, the things? I think people that have had exposure to them are the ones that see them. Wow. I, I hate to say it because so many people get mad at me, and it scares so many just everyday people that have seen UFOs. Uh, it scares them, you know, because they're like, oh, no, I just seen a UFO. I'm not an abductee. I said, well, how do you know? I said, most abductees will never know they've been abducted. How, how do you know? Hmm. I said, unless you try to recover their memories, how do you really know that you're not an abductee? And, and that's the, the – and, and this is more important than everything I just said. To prove this point, I started randomly calling UFO witnesses, just not contactees, just UFO witnesses – and asking them if they would submit to regression. Well, i got to be honest with you. Most of them told me no, okay? Mm-hmm. But about two dozen said yes. And guess what? They turned out to be abductees. Really? Under, under deep regression, the memories came out. And by the way, we don't lead anybody. We just ask them, tell us what you've seen on the event. Did they, uh, like in the, in the case, I said, well, Mary, tell me what you've seen on March 21st when you spotted that thing in the sky. I didn't even use the word UFO or anything. And they described it. Then I said, well, tell me what else was going on. Did anything else happen? And then... Of course, they would start talking about actually what happened. And then you realize they were abducted. So, you know, for me, it's, it's important to get people to understand that because I don't think – like let's look, let's look at Rendlesham Forest. There's a whole military base. What, 10 people seen it? Right. You know, it's a big forest with a big city around it. It's Rendlesham. That was, a fa- that was a fascinating case too. It is. It's an excellent case actually and there's a lot more going on there. Thanks to Peter and Larry let me get in the middle of this. There's a lot more going on here, which I'm not going to talk about today because I'm sure Peter's going to talk about some of it at the, at the conference in June. And there's some stuff that we haven't even discussed yet that I've found since I talked to them. Uh, I will tell you this, uh, and this is like an exclusive for anybody listening to this show. I have no doubt that Larry Warren was definitely mill-amped, and I'm pretty sure that the other ones were too. Uh, and I think it's the first time it's ever been talked about. And by the way, they probably agree with me. Uh, I don't think it's a big deal for them, but for the listening audience, it probably is. Everybody's always talked about it just being an experience out in the woods. Um, now, in all fairness, that experience could have been some type of aerial drug, some type of LSD, and then they mill-labbed them afterwards to find out what happened. Uh, so that doesn't necessarily mean there was ET involvement, but I'm not ruling that out either. Mm-hmm. There was something that some of the other ones said that suggested there was maybe some type of extraterrestrial involvement in that particular case. And if there was ET involved with military soldiers, you can bet the military mill lab somebody's butt to find out what they could find out. Because, you know, they describe walking in that field and the three pods and the ground and things like that. It's just I'm not sure what kind of witnesses Jim Penniston and and John Burroughs are because of some of the stuff they said recently. Mm Kind of throws me for a loop. But, hey, you know, contactees go crazy all the time. So, yeah. That's a lot to deal with. Non-contactees do too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, they probably go crazier more often. And there's other weird things too, like contactees tend to have an above-normal IQ. It'll usually be 140 or higher. Okay, now I know I'm safe. (laughs) You know, well, so you don't know that. So you don't know until you get tested. And uh, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll. Something else that's weird about contactees though is they're very selective about their friends. Uh, they're very sociable people, mind you, but they prefer to associate with people in their own groups, uh, you know, family, friends, and maybe other contactees or other strange people. They, they tend to want to associate with them. But what's more important than that and what's really, really weird about it is, is they, all of them, when you ask them this, 
you know, if, if I say, like, like I said, well, if something happened to your kid, what would you do? They freak. I said, and if I said, what happens to such and such, they freak. And then, you know, if you ask a normal everyday person about, you know, mass destruction of the planet, it usually bothers them and upsets them. You ask contactees, they accept it. Like it's part of what's going to happen and they show no remorse. So the contactee group in this planet don't really, they, they, from what they, the way they explain it to me, they feel disconnected from everybody else on the planet. It's like they're outside of the norm, standing on the side watching or something, and watching and waiting might be a better way you of know, saying right it. Right now, while you're saying this, there's people out there in the listening audience with little light bulbs going off in their head, probably. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and it just does it. It's just, it's something about contactees. It's not that they're mean or cruel or vicious. They're very loving, very kind kind of people. It's just when it comes to everyday humans they 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 just don't feel that humanity that everybody else does it's 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 maybe it's the alien blood in them i don't know what it is but they do feel disconnected they you know like when uh like the 911 towers all oh, everybody was just oh my god contactees were upset that it happened but they didn't feel any great have any great sense of loss like the rest of the country did and you could you could really see the difference. Also, something else I found weird, you know, all these supposable psychics on a planet, no one could predict nine one one. But I will tell you this: almost all of our contactees two weeks prior to nine one one got this weird, freaky feeling. They were all coming into chat rooms and so, man, I don't know what it is, Joe. Something's weird. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Something's weird. All of them, uh, it's off. Something doesn't feel right. Something's going on. And man, I heard this on and on and on and on and on. And then boom, the yeah. twin towers happened. But in all fairness, none of them could predict the Twin Towers. They just knew something was wrong. Matter of fact, to put it in perspective, a month before Katrina, I, got, I was getting phone calls from some of my more psychic contactees telling me I should move. Oh, really? That, some, that something was going to happen to New Orleans. But they didn't know what. They just knew there was something wrong. And actually, they didn't even say something was going to happen. They just kept saying, something's wrong about where you live. Something's wrong about where you live. Something's wrong about where you live. Uh, but no one knew what, and you know, you, and I got to take that kind of stuff with a grain of salt because I didn't, you know, they might be crazy, and I'm not going to get up and move because a bunch of crazy people. But you got numerous people that told you that, though, right? Yeah, numerous, about two dozen actually. And, um, and you didn't move? <laughs> no, but I did leave for the storm. I okay, didn't. there you go. And in all my life, it is the only storm I have ever evacuated for, uh-huh. ever. And I and I've been through some hairy, scary storms, much stronger than Katrina was. Katrina was actually only a Cat Three when it got here. Hmm. Uh, I was here for Betsy, which was four point five, and Camille, which was a five. Um, so you know, I had never left for a storm before. Even my family was kind of freaked out that I was making everyone leave. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, I, I, matter of fact, Lynn and I. This is so funny how this happened. Long story short, we were out Friday night at the casino in Gulfport, Mississippi, at the Bluxy Grand gambling. And we're drinking. We were planning on spending a weekend up there, you know, because so because no one really had an idea where the storm was actually going yet. So we're sitting there, we're drinking. It's about two o'clock in the morning, and I'm sitting at the bar having a couple white Russians playing video poker. And I was watching this storm, and I'm thinking about these people that were talking to me. And I'm watching the storm, and every now and then I notice it would just jog a little bit to the left, and I got this really bad feeling that it was going for New Orleans. So I went and found Linda. I said, you know what? We're going to check out our hotel tonight, and uh, we're going to go home, and in the morning we're going to get the family, and we're going to leave. Well, the hotel we were staying in and the casino we were gambling, the casino ended up on top of the hotel we were staying in. Oh, my god! The storm actually lifted the whole casino up out of the water and dropped it on top of the casino we were staying at. What scared me even worse was the people who owned and run the place said they were not going to leave. So mm-hmm. more than likely, they didn't make it. 
Wow. Uh, so we get home the next day. I'm calling all my family and said, we're leaving at 12 today. Be ready or be left behind. Everybody was like, Joe, you never leave for a storm. I'm like, so, and then like uh, one of my stepdaughters, she wasn't going to come. And then, you know, her mom's like, you know, Joe never leaves for a storm. So she's like, you're right. We're getting the hell out of here. Yeah, that's a warning sign. <laughs> Good thing she left because there was 12 foot of water in her house. Hmm. Wow. My other daughter, her, the roofs caved in on an apartment complex and it was three foot of water in her house. The only house that didn't take any damage was ours. Uh, we got three inches of water in the house. That was it. And if we would have been home, we wouldn't even got that because we would have just thrown sandbags at the front door. We wouldn't even got any water. Uh, but uh, it was weird. And, you know, we got a lot of first first broadcast, first live broadcast from the city of New Orleans was done by the Paranormal Radio Network the Wednesday after the storm. Was it? Cool. Yes. We were broadcasting live from the city. Uh, the first office building up and running went to my company. First apartment complex up and running went to my company. Um, you know, so I, I hope when they do their history book on Katrina, at least we get some kind of honorable mention. Yeah, they remember uh, you. Yeah. Well, somebody said they were writing, and a lady told me she wrote in to tell them they were wrong about the office buildings. We had the first one up and running. And, and we did. We were here working. This office building was almost running before any major crews had even gotten into the city. Uh, we were home and, and going. We had passes to get back in and the whole nine yards, and, and we were ready to work. You know, so we got in and did it. And then, they, like we were talking about earlier, you know, people were seeing reptilians running around. Yeah, I got to tell you, I had, a gun, I had a gun on my side for at least the first six months I was home. Not because of reptilians, mind you, but because of some of the crazies that were loose in the city. Right. Um, you know, a couple of times I walked up on stuff like I was in one yard working on something. Some dog come out from under the house, looked like he hadn't eaten in three weeks, looked like he wanted me for lunch. <laughs> and, uh, I didn't shoot him, but you know, I thought I might have to, but I didn't have to. It was one of them things. What was weird, though, I didn't see any UFOs over the city at all after the storm. Nothing. And I got to say, the first night we were home, we went outside because there was no light. You know, mm-hmm. There's no electricity at all. The sky was stunningly gorgeous over the sure. city. It's a shame how beautiful that sky was because you'll never see it again unless something happens to the city. Uh, it's not even that pretty on the coast. It has something to do with where the city's located. It was just absolutely a stunning sky. And I never knew that sky even existed over my city. I bet it had to be incredibly quiet too, wasn't it? Oh, it was. Oh, yeah, it was freaking people out. I had people coming in from like Canada and Texas and all over to come down and help us. And I brought a crew down to the city of New Orleans about ten days after the storm. I went to go look at one of the properties for one of my owners, and um, I get down there, and we're on Canal Street, and this is a five hundred year old, four hundred five hundred year old city, and you could hear a pin drop. Wow. No birds, no dogs, no nothing, no cars, no nothing. There was no animals or nothing. You, you got this sense of everything that was left behind in the city, you know, for the last 500 years of its existence was now loose and moving around. It gave you this really weird, creepy, weird. Matter of fact, most of the guys didn't want to go back down there after that. Nobody really wanted to go back to the city until they actually started having people in the city again. Of course, you had reptilians walking around, too. It, it was just, yeah, well, yeah, but see, you didn't even mention that part yet. I didn't even want to go on the air with that at the time. I was like, oh, my God, people are really freaked out. They find out we got reptilians walking around the city in New Orleans. Uh-huh. And, and National Guard, you know, PDs are talking about it. You know they're going to freak out. They, they really was. But um, it, was, it, was, it was an interesting place to be and a very strange place to be. Now, I did see one really good video about an hour before the storm, uh, I'm sorry, about 10 hours before the storm was getting to the city, you could see this massive cloud bank, way, way high, lightning flicking across it, rain pouring underneath it. And it's, it's impressive cloud bank. And whoever took it was standing on one of the bridges out in St. Bernard. Uh, and they got it. It's, it's actually Katrina coming in. 
Huh. You know, and it's what it is. It's it's like the the the, the main part of the storm coming in, and he got this picture. Well, I'm looking at the picture. And I was really impressed when it gives you this really powerful, creepy, really fear. Well, in the picture is a silver saucer, oh. clear as day. Uh, we couldn't figure out what it was at first. It kept looking like something shining, but there was no sunlight. We were like, "What the hell is that?" Put it in one of the paint shops, blew it up, and sure enough. He was riding in on the storm, huh? Yeah, I asked the guy if he had seen it. He said he didn't remember seeing it. But when he seen it in the, the in the video, he was like, "Damn!" Uh, but he said he never he never seen it with his the naked eye. He, he never noticed it. He didn't notice it until one of our guys picked it out of the of the the, the photo. But uh, it was it was wild. It was just a weird, strange place to be for those first few months afterwards. I'm glad you uh, made but, it out okay, too. So many yeah, people. I, <laughs> we're starting to run a little low here on oh, time. Yeah. Do you want to uh, give out uh, any information, web addresses or anything? You're also the host of UFO Undercover, too. I didn't say that. But uh, do you want to give out some more web uh, addresses here or anything? Okay, I'll give them out real quick. Yes, I, I do host UFO Undercover. It's one of the largest uh, radio shows on the Internet, not just in the paranormal or UFO world, but in general. It's over a million and a half listeners. Uh, and some days it gets even higher than that. So it's, it's a very large show. I do it every Wednesday night, 7 to 9, on the Paranormal Radio Network, www.paranormalradionetwork.com or www.ufoundercover.com. Uh, but the more important sites, and don't get me wrong, the Paranormal Radio Network is very important to me. It's a very big part of my life, but www.icar1.com that is the research site that is where you can go if you want to be researched and I'm going to give you all a site that I rarely ever talk about www.alienenigma.org or .com this is a personal website where I put up some of my original experiences a decade ago uh, actually 12 years ago I posted it to this, well this is 2012 14 years ago I posted this to this site in case I ever came out with my own personal experiences, I didn't want people to think I was jumping on the bandwagon. So before I formed ICAR or the Paranormal Radio Network, I got involved in this in any public view. I actually put this site up for people to go see. That's cool. Uh, and it, so it's a personal website. It never gets updated, so please don't write to me about when I'm going to update it because it ain't. It's just a plausible deniability site is basically what it is or, or, or the opposite way around. But that's what it's there for. And I know people ask me about it from time to time. So. There are some experiences that Linda and I talk about about our golf breeze trip. So you might want to go check it out and just see for yourself. I think that's everybody. I hope I didn't miss anybody. You already know where Threshold is, so if you don't, shame on you. Okay. Well, it's, we're on <laughs> UFO Paranormal Radio Network, too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But, I mean, y'all should know where he is by now. Shame on y'all. Okay. Well, and Joe, I, I mean, that's this has been an amazing, amazing talk, too. I really appreciate it. No, oh, I had a great time, John. I really did. Okay. It sounds good. Well, thanks again, Joe, and we'll talk to you later. All right, thanks, man. All right, that was Joe Montaldo. We hope you enjoyed the show tonight. We'll be back next Friday from 10 to 11 on theedgeonair.com, or you can check us out right here on ufo-info.com Sunday nights at 7.30. We'll see you next Sunday or Friday. <laughs>